Well, I hope everyone had a great Christmas and a very happy new year because today's episode, we're back in the studio, all of us, and we're going to make some predictions. That's right. Will 2024 be the year of the zombie apocalypse we've all been anticipating? Or will it be the year that we just turn everything around and it all goes back to roses and puppy dogs and lollipops? We're going to be answering all of those questions. We're going to be going through. We're going to be looking at politics. We're going to be looking at personal improvement. We're going to be looking at war across the globe. And we're going to be making predictions on just about everything that you will be able to hold us to account for in the months to come. And I got to tell you, I'm excited about 2024. Absolutely. Probably for all the wrong reasons. But I am excited about 2024 <laughs> because I think it's going to be one for the history books. And uh, I'm just excited where we're, where we're at yep. with all of it. So we're going to be answering all of that and more. Plus we are going to give you, despite the fact that none of us are financial experts, we're going to give you the number one spot you can go for all the best stock picks for all of 2024. That's right. We can't legally give that advice, but we're going to do it because we know stick around and you'll learn more. It's, it's just following whatever Nancy Pelosi's husband invests in all of that and more coming up on this episode of making the argument. I was about to say that was a twist I wasn't <laughs> ready for, but anyway, we have so many good plans for 2024 coming up and we are excited for you to join us on this journey. If you haven't already go down to the link in the description, join our community chat. We would love to get to know you there. A lot of exciting things coming up. All right. As always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates. But other than that, a relatively decent guy, kind of, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. With us in the studio is my beautiful bride, Tina, Queen of the Bees. Hello, everyone. And then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nicholas oh. Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. You're going to me first today. Yeah, I had to do that because if I go to Christian, <laughs> I know what's going to happen. We're going to get we're going to get locked up in some sort of dialogue that leaves you out of the introduction process. And I didn't want to do that. But you, last but certainly not least, Master Hines. That's right. Our political prognosticator and resident historian. How are you, ha buddy? Happy New Year. Um <laughs> I'm so happy to get out of 2023. You sound happy. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> this is, this is, this is a Christian's voice when he is filled with glee. <laughs> Christian didn't uh, leave 2023 as much as he escaped it. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's good to be back though. No, no. I mean, look, we, let's first things first. Let's talk about a couple of things that are going to be happening over the next few months because I do have to go down to Richmond um, for the legislative session, which is going to start the second second Wednesday in January, and it goes all the way through mid-March. So we're not going to be able to do the regularly scheduled live episodes that we've been doing every Tuesday and Thursday. However, in anticipation and knowing that this was, was going to take place, we actually pre-recorded a lot of stuff. We've done a lot of interviews. We yep. got a great interview coming up with John Lovell, but this time we made it even better because we brought on his wife, Becca, and I brought in my wife, Tina. And we sat down and we had a conversation about all sorts of things from military life to raising kids to their time in the mission field. Really, really good conversation there. Um, we've also talked to uh, Jessica Tapia, who yep. is the the teacher that got fired out of the California school, out of a California school district for refusing to lie to parents because that's apparently a fireable offense in California unified school districts now. Uh, so we got a, her coming on. We, we've got a, a ton of other people that Matt we've interviewed. Boudreaux. Matt Boudreaux is another one. If you're familiar with Tim Kennedy, uh, Tim Kennedy and Matt Boudreaux worked together. Matt Boudreaux was a professional educator for many years and essentially through that experience decided, yeah, I'm not sending my kids to this. And he, he got out, started developing his own, um, um, 
you know, educational mechanism. It's really interesting, very interesting stuff and very encouraging for anybody that's been thinking to themselves, all right, look, I'm, I'm fed up with the way that the government's running education. I want an alternative. So Matt Boudreaux provides some insight on how to do that. Fascinating. Some of the mechanisms, it's really, really good stuff. So again, we have a a ton of interviews that are coming up. Um, And then obviously we're going to be shooting some other, shooting other episodes and doing things like that. And we're going to be trying to keep in that Tuesday and Thursday, but it's just the live part that we're not going to be able to do is regularly scheduled. However, if you join our community, our community chat over in Circle, links in the description. We got over a thousand members down there now. We're going to be leaving very, very heavily into our community for developing what the podcast looks, especially coming out of March and going into the rest of 2024. So if you want to be a part of that, that is a great place to join up, provide some insight. We're really going to be leaning. We're, we're just going to be doubling down on, on the amount of uh, effort that we put into that community because we're going to build a lot of stuff out of there. And yep. we're, we're pretty excited about what comes up. We're going to have some more updates as we go forward. So and just to clarify, we're also going to be doing team episodes just like we have here mm-hmm. that are pre-recorded. So we're going to be mixing interviews and team episodes in together. If you'd like to be up to date on what episodes are coming out, when join our community chat and you'll, you'll be in the know. Plus, at the end of today's episode, the last 30 minutes of today's episode, we're going to be dedicating it exclusively to your questions. So if there's anything we're talking about right now, if we're like, Nick, that was an excellent prediction on whatever it was you predicted, but you didn't answer my question on the yeah. thing we really wanted a prediction on. Well, that last 30 minutes, we're going to we're gonna do that. And of course, all of this is brought to you by the good people over at Good Ranchers. Stick around because, uh, I don't know, we might have a funny segue into our uh, Good Ranchers ad. Maybe we will, maybe we know. I'm not making any promises. We'll see what, I'm just kidding. We, we made promises to Good Ranchers. We'll definitely do an ad. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into to our first predictive question that we have, right? And so the way this is going to work is, is we're going to take turns, maybe like reading off questions and demanding someone answer it, all right? So okay. my first question for Christian will be, will Trump be convicted and will it prevent him from being able to seek the Republican nomination? Um, no, and... No, well, certainly no to the second question. Um, so either way, convicted, he, not convicted. I, well, I, I actually don't know if he'll be convicted or not, but I know that that's not going to stop him from, he's going to get the nomination. I mean, the, the, this is the most boring primary ever. Um, I <laughs> Bunch mean, of people running for second place. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and, and I like what a lot of these, I mean, as long as you're not Nikki Haley or Chris Christie, I like what you have to say if you're <laughs> probably up there on the stage. And so like, we've got some interesting people running. Like I've, praised a lot of Ron DeSantis's record in Florida before. Yeah. I, I like a lot of what Vivek has to say. Yeah. Um, but neither of them are going to win. Like, well, Trump's that, that get was the nomination. I, I really, I really thought DeSantis crushed Gavin Newsom in that little debate they had. There was only one thing that there was only one line that, that Newsom had that I was like, all right, that's pretty funny. And that's when Gavin Newsom said, you and I do have one thing in common. Neither of us will be the nominee for our party for president. This you know, 2024, you know, I, I still wouldn't, uh, um, you know, I, I would say the jury's actually still out for Newsom. Oh, well, that's not the question, though. <laughs> that's not the question. Stick to Stay. Trump, because I but think yeah, that question's yeah, to, coming. To, to answer yeah. the question, Donald Trump is going to get the nomination unless unless something like catastrophic So you don't think he'll be convicted of anything? You no, you don't no, think it's, it's not that I don't think he'll be convicted. It's okay. that I think regardless of whether or not he will be convicted, he's going to get the nomination. Well, I see, because I think there was there was only Depends one- Depends on what he's convicted of and if it stands. There because was only- there, if, if he is convicted of- you know, an insurrection, then he'll go up in the polls. (laughs) I understand. But then there will be actually constitutional justification for keeping him off ballot. 
Well, here, here's point. here's what I'll say. I I think that out of all the charges I've seen leveled against Trump and, and looked at, and again, I don't I don't claim to be a lawyer. Um, a, a lot of it just seems a lot of the stuff in New York is just absolute garbage. Like, oh, he overvalued his real estate. Pro- like, oh, shut up. It's all BS. Like, like the no, whole the, no, the, the, BS. no. There's one. There's one thing against Trump, and again, part of this is Trump's inability to shut up. At times, and that has to do with with some of the conversations that went down with respect to the classified materials at, at Malargo. Um, there, there's some of the things that he said in there that look, you you might be able to get a conviction off of that. Not because he did. Listen, let's let's be honest here. Not because he did anything that was some sort of major threat to national security. And and, and this is also the problem where the Democrats created a situation for themselves because there is, from what I've seen so far, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, there's nothing Trump did with respect to the, the document, the classified documents that left the White House that was anywhere near as bad as what Hillary Clinton did. But, well, but mean, with Hillary the Clinton, it was like, has, well, there was no intent to do anything nefarious, so we decided not to charge you. Like, oh, I didn't realize that was the law now. Well, but the president has the ability to declassify documents, right? And so, be, so because the president can do that, and Hillary Clinton did not have the authority to do that, what they basically were splitting and, hairs, but still. And that is going to be the argument. The problem is some of the comments that he made that, that people are now testifying to, which yeah. suggests that he knew he hadn't declassified those documents. Okay, so I maintain this opinion, um, and, and I could totally be wrong, but the only thing, the only conviction, basically, that's going to mean anything with getting on ballots in states is the insurrection one. Yeah, I'm more worried uh, about all, that. None of the yeah. others, no, all of the others are, I mean, shoot, He'll still be on the ballot. And even if he did something illegal, even if he goes to jail, he'll still be on the ballot unless it's insurrection because they're all pointing to this. The 14th Amendment. Right. Yes. Well, and, um, and I would say, I think the insurrection charges are absolute garbage. Ball, like if they, BS, if they convict BS. him on that, if they can convict him on that. Civil war. I, we actually did a podcast bad. on that. I it's don't, gonna, I don't it, think it'll it would, get bad. I, I don't think it would quite, because we did a podcast on that, right? That, that you know, removing Trump for the ballot yeah. or disqualifying him or throwing him in prison would that trigger a civil war. And I don't think that it necessarily would. I think it would radicalize a lot of people even more than they already are. In fact, actually, I think the Democrats are shooting themselves in the foot right oh now. Oh my gosh, Colorado doing this. Like, like they, they, I tweeted about this a few days ago, like, like, if they genuinely think that this is going to somehow fix the problem from their point of view, they, they're more delusional than I than I ever thought that they were. Because throwing Trump in prison or convicting him of any of these charges, some of which are absolutely bogus. In fact, most of them, if not all of them, are absolutely bogus. Like doing all this is not going to to deal with the circumstances that led to a figure like Trump emerging in the first place. Oh, no, in fact, it's going to amplify those circumstances. So. Yeah. It, it might not be Trump that comes along and, and, you know, actually sweeps clean, drains the swamp, so to speak. But it'll be somebody in that same mold down the road that will be doing that. I, so. I, I My opinion is Trump will be on the ballots. He will be the nominee and he will beat whoever he's up against. Well, you're just jumping ahead on questions. Hey, I'm just saying. <laughs> well, and, and my whole my whole opinion on this is he's only got one term. So he has nothing to lose. And and so I think he has 
tons of leeway to do whatever he wants. Well, I, <laughs> and look, he's not going to be worried about a re-election at that point. I think when so it comes that's, down to- That's actually something I find a little bit attractive about this option. So I, I think I think he might get convicted of, of something. I think it'll be relatively trivial in the end. I don't think, if he gets convicted of the insurrection, I don't think it sticks. And I think Colorado and Maine are, are shooting themselves in the foot. All right. Five minutes. That was our five minutes on that one. Now we're, Ooh, we were trying to keep ourselves- Does everybody else hear the beeping? Yep. Or is that just- a, I'll turn that off. We're okay. trying to keep ourselves <laughs> to a time right now because we're, we're so bad about rabbit trails. But I think we did pretty good on that one. Yeah. Next All right. question. Next question. All right. So who will be... Actually, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change this up. Um, who will be the Democratic nominee? And let's also assume who would, be, who, who would be the Democratic nominee if it isn't Biden. All right. So the first question is, will Biden be the nominee? Tina, do you think Biden will be the nominee? No. You don't think it'll be okay, Christian? So. Do you yes. think Biden? Yes. Hamilton. Yes. I think Biden's going to be the nominee, but since Tina let off with no, they're going to he's he's going to die from falling downstairs before he could. No, that's who, not. So who Biden. is who is going to be the the Democratic nominee? Well, I don't think that anybody who has announced so far for the Democratic. <sighs> She's going the Michelle route. No, um, I think Newsom. I think I think it'll be oh. Newsom. There. Him playing off this whole neither of us will be the nominee for our party, blah, blah, blah. That that was as much of a zinger as that might have been on on that stage. Um, that was also another lie that he told up there. I, I, I am telling you, I think he is definitely planning to be the nominee. Um, and even if even if he wins, even if Biden wins the nomination, there is a lot of time between the nomination and the general for in for a switch, and yeah. I, I I do not put it past them to to. There are too many Democrats that are pointing out the cognitive decline of the president, um, and and the incompetency of so him and think, the vice president. So you think it will be Newsom? By the by the time we get by the time we get to election day, it's Newsom on the ballot for the Democrats. I, I think it would be Newsom. Yeah. Okay, so I I think it's Biden, but I do think. I, I do think Newsom has definitely positioned himself to be the alternative if something happens. And I do think he's auditioning to run for president, which honestly, was honestly on some level, I'm like, oh, please run Newsom. Why, why else would he be trying to make such a splash on the national stage? And it, it's it's crazy to me that he is running California directly into the ground and yet trying to court people on the national well, here, stage. Here's the funny part. When he was mayor of San Francisco, he said, we have put forward a bold plan to end, effectively end homelessness in San Francisco. And he did such a good job that they promoted him to governor. Oh, wait, no, he, he didn't do a good job in San Francisco. They just promoted him to governor because just like saying the right things in the San Francisco mayoral race gets you elected to mayor, saying the right things in the gubernatorial race gets you elected to governor of California. You don't have to actually show any definitive results with respect to what you promised people. And I'm looking at this going, holy crap, this guy screwed up San Francisco. He screwed up California. And now we're thinking, gosh, I wonder what he could do with 50 states. Well, I don't know. <laughs> he did finally clean it up for, you know, <laughs> China to come and, and, <laughs> you know, wave a bunch of Chinese flags up and down where human fecal matter used to be. That is the and quickest way to clean up streets in San Francisco is to invite a communist dictator for a trade conference. Yeah. And and so basically if we were to put that on a, on a, on a bigger scale, then okay, well maybe he'll do a bunch of stuff for the communist dictators if he's president. Okay. Let me, let me, okay. So we all think it's going to be Biden. I think Newsom is obviously, I would you agree with that? Newsom? If, if, Biden isn't on, I mean, cause I think Biden will be the nominee now. Yeah. Now, if he makes it to November, 
you know, either for health reasons or for cognitive reasons or just because the Democratic machine realizes that they can't win with him for whatever reason, if they if they decide to go with the switch, I mean, it depends on the timing, right? Because if you're talking like post convention, you're starting to run out of time. And yeah. so at that point, you need somebody that can can really excite the base. You're basically throwing a Hail Mary. If you're talking about before the convention, right, if something happens tomorrow and Joe Biden is not running, and he's dropped out of the race or, or, you know, God forbid he passes away. I'm not going to I'm not going to necessarily, you know, be joyful over, you know, just because my political opponents are dead. Right. I'm not going to stoop to that level. But if he if he's either incapacitated, dead or decides to drop out, whatever it is before the convention, then you have a little bit more leeway. Right. You you have more time to, like, go through the traditional primary yeah. process. So. I would say that if it's before convention, it's probably somebody like Newsom. Mm -hmm. And if it's after convention, you have to go for a wild card like somebody like Michelle, Michelle Obama. Obama or somebody like well, that. Well, I don't know about that because if you look at the – why else would Newsom be trying to constantly be on the national stage? Because it's, he's auditioning for next time. Uh, okay. I think he is positioning himself to be the logical next person – to pick and that's why he's doing presidential style debate with with republicans and it's also why he's going around and you know i don't disagree with your reason glad handing what, people in other states it is possible to do both at the same time yeah right I, I but what, what i'm saying is i think he is positioning himself to be on the national stage in case this happens that he would be the logical step. I, I don't disagree with that. I think, like I said, I think he's positioning to be the alternative to Biden. If for some reason Biden can't run, I think Christian's point and this actually makes a lot of sense is once you get into it, like a potentially contested convention where now all of a sudden it's like, who do we pick? You're generally going at a convention for like the, what do you call it? The, uh, not the consolidation candidate, but the, the candidate that kind of unify the everyone, consensus the candidate. consensus candidate. And I'm telling you right now, if Michelle Obama decided to jump in and be the consensus candidate, I don't think Gavin Newsom tries to challenge her for that. I just, I don't. All right. Well, that's our five minutes for that one. All right. Yep. Moving on to the next one. Okay. Here we go. Now, regardless of who wins the election, whether it's Biden, Trump, um, Newsom, Michelle Obama, I don't know, somebody we haven't heard of yet, whoever wins, will there be violent riots? Absolutely. Absolutely. So no matter who wins, we're seeing violent riots. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah because here's the thing. Um, every, pretty much everybody on the right side of the aisle is probably assuming that if Trump is the nominee and Trump loses again, uh, that it was stolen. No matter what, we're already set up to believe it's going to be stolen. Yeah. Um, they're already setting themselves up to make us feel like they're trying to steal it by yeah. keeping him off ballots and things like that. Um, and I mean, the left does all these crazy shenanigans with, with uh, elections and, and we all know it. And so, no matter what, even if Trump were to legitimately lose, uh, it's not going to be by very much. And yeah. they're going to think people are going to think it was stolen. And we're going to probably be able to point to a lot of shenanigans going on to substantiate that claim, just like last time. And then here's the other thing is um, if the Democrats win, obviously they can't say it was stolen or sorry, if, if Trump wins, obviously the Democrats can't say it's stolen, but I do think there will be absolute chaos. Well, I mean, remember the girl, the thing, it, whatever it was <laughs> screaming bloody murder in the middle of the street that became basically a gif for everybody to use after that, the screaming, these people 
have not gotten better since then. Well, They've gotten even more deranged since then. I really, I mean, they were throwing bricks through windows, setting things on fire, and that was not an insurgency, by the way, you guys. <laughs> um, they were attacking private businesses and not the government that they were mad at, you know, because it's definitely the business's fault. So anyway, I think you're going to see that just supersized. Okay. So, so well, I mean, this is kind of two different questions because one of the things that you brought up there was, was an interesting point that I brought up with a reporter once, because when January 6th took place, I came out and I said, yeah, you, you shouldn't storm the Capitol to try to affect a, a, a change with respect to the electoral college. And you certainly shouldn't engage in vandalism and things like that. I said, but not, not everybody that not everybody that was in DC on January 6th was doing those things. Yeah. The overwhelming majority actually were. Yeah, overwhelming majority were, were not. And and quite frankly, I think we've been lied to about a lot of the things that took place within January 6th and the video footage, which suggests that, that that's true. Oh, and they not, call not it to, the not, not deadly to, Not January. to mention the fact that many of those people have now been in jail for like a, a, a long time, like since that day almost. So yeah. it, it's not as if the government wasn't quick to go out and punish those people. Here's my question. And, and this, so I brought all this up with this reporter and I said, well, okay, but what do you say about all the riots and burning down buildings and chop and Chaz and everything else that was going on where they set up autonomous zones? She goes, and, and she looks at me, she goes, well, Nick, but this was the Capitol. I said, yeah, that's part of the problem here is that you guys see the, the big white government building in Washington, D.C. as the overall symbol of our country. And, and I get that. I get that. But we also see all of the little small businesses and the people that have worked in their entire dang lives to try to build something to, to protect them. We see that as America, too. Yep. Well, well, no, Nick, this is different. Like, yeah, you're right. One was a government building that immediately got National Guard police protection and high walls surrounding all of it in order to keep politicians safe. And the others was, well, this is just the summer of love. And I guess people just needed to be heard. And that's what insurance is for. So, yep. yeah, you're right. We have two very, very different views of what actually constitutes America. And when you put all the emphasis, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be any emphasis on it. Yes, I, I believe the Capitol building, Capitol building stands as an example or, or as, as, a, as a component of America. But if, if all the private citizens going out there living their lives and trying to build something, if that doesn't count or we're going to diminish that importance, well then, yeah, I'm going to say that you and I have very, very different views on where America is found in this country. Yeah. So here's what I'll say is that I do think that, to your point, um, I don't, and again, let me caveat this. I don't want to see violent riots, regardless of, of, of who wins, but I will say this. I think there's a, a huge problem with all the mud democracy people over on the left screaming about, because again, after all that young lady was just screaming when Trump won because she was so concerned about democracy yeah. and is no doubt now cheering the Supreme court of Colorado and the secretary of state of Maine, who is arbitrarily removing the names of candidates from ballots because insurrection. Oh, really? Can someone show me where Trump has, has even been charged with insurrection? Well, he wasn't Georgia, wasn't he? No, no. There, even that was a little bit different, right? Even they, so oh, that, that was the, the whole seditious like, conspiracy. Yeah, okay. But here's the deal. Two people talking about like two people talking to plot to like disobey the law can technically fall under the, the realm of seditious conspiracy, right? There's a reason why they picked it. And it's because it's so dang broad on some levels that you can put a lot of stuff into it that most people don't think when they hear that. And to, to your point though, he hasn't been convicted of anything in yeah. that and, and politicians and that's what they are. Yeah. Right. Are arbitrarily removing him from the ballot. That's the most explicit example of, 
of trying to rig an election that I've ever seen. Who knew that in a democracy, you could simply remove your opponents from the ballot if they become too popular? Well, in order to save democracy, we had to kill it. I saw a guy on Twitter that was saying he doesn't need to be convicted in order to be kept off the ballot for insurrection. And, And I'm looking at that going... There has to be some kind of well. Here's something. the here's the trick to that. The Fourteenth Amendment says engage, and he's like, all you have to do is engage in it, and we know he engaged in it. I'm like, oh, okay, great. We? Well, then you've just engaged in treason. I, I don't got to prove it in a court of law or anything. I just have to declare that that's what happened. Right. I just have to declare that you've engaged it. The the whole process, the whole due process of law thing, there, big guy, fella. That's what we use to determine whether or not someone is actually engaged in a criminal activity. If you take that part out and just say, oh well, it just means engage. Well, no, we we have to actually go through a process to determine that you did legally do that. And if you're going to er- erase that process anytime you find it politically convenient, I got bad news. It's not going to work so well when people you don't like are in power and have decided you're the problem. Yeah. But as Christians pointed out several times as well, they don't think that far because they don't need to because this is about the revolution and it doesn't need to make sense yeah. as long as they win. Well, when they changed the January 6th riots to January 6th, insurrection. And here's the thing is now they add extra adjectives and extra, you know, extra words to it. So that now it's the deadly January 6th insurrection. And what's really interesting to me is the only person who was hurt or killed was somebody uh, who basically was killed by a Capitol police officer. Yeah, it was, a, it was one of them. Um, shooting through a door. I think she and I hitting think it was, her. was a door or window. It was, glass or it was a glass yeah. door, glass window on the door or whatever it yeah. was. And I'm telling you, um, the only other person who, who died that day was somebody in cardiac arrest that was a, a Capitol police officer. And, and that's supposed to be, uh, somehow caused by these insurrectionists. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole of, of. That's fine. What, what I'm just saying. What, well, look, look we're at out of time left, on this look one. Look at the left and how they did their crazy you know, riots all throughout 20, uh, or sorry, uh, what was it? 2016? 2020. They, no, no, 2016. Okay. So a couple of things here. We're in 2020 because we're supposed to move on. 2020. Yes. They, they did. They did riots during 2020. That was the whole summer of love thing and, yeah. and the whole deal. The other thing, the other point that you're bringing out is that in 2016 or in 2016, when Trump got elected, two things happened. One, several legislators tried to stop the electoral college mm-hmm. from confirming the the vote. Several Hollywood actors came out and said it was rigged. Jimmy Carter said it was rigged. Hillary Clinton said it was rigged. It was all rigged by the Russians. You had people throwing Molotov cocktails in Washington, D.C. at motorcades. Yeah. You had people engaging in violence. Madonna protests. was saying she wanted to kill the president. Right? No, nobody, nobody accused any of yeah. that of insurrectionist behavior, right? Why? Because it that term didn't work for what they wanted. It works yeah. now. And, and again, I'm not condoning... What people, the people who actually did go in, vandalize the Capitol, attempt to intimidate people. So I'm not condoning any of that. That's illegal. You deserve to be prosecuted for that if found guilty. I, I do think that a lot of the due process laws seem to have been subverted in this in this entire thing in, in service to a political narrative. Yeah. Um, but but ultimately, I guess the consensus here is, is that regardless of who wins the election, there's probably going to be riots of, of some kind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Let me again. I'm I'm hoping that's I'm hoping that's not the case. I'm hoping there's a lot of things that can change between now and, and election night. But I will say this: a big part of the problem I have is that not not only have not only is this behavior toward Trump by the left with respect to I think trumped up charges with respect to removing him, trying to remove him from the ballot in Colorado and Maine, with respect to 
Um, all of that is problematic. But then on top of that, a lot of the information that is now coming out about voting totals in Georgia, in Arizona, in Pennsylvania, and other places, that's also causing people to go back and say, wait a second, as more as more evidence comes out that not all of the claims that, hey, there was there was malfeasance with respect to the election mm-hmm. was, was, again, just conspiracy theories. Um, that's also going to fuel the fire that once again, people are losing faith with respect to our voting process. And one of the ways they, they solve this in Argentina, paper ballots. And, and I, I know we've had people ask us, why can't we go back to paper ballots in Virginia? It's very simple because we don't have the votes to go back to paper ballots in Virginia. That's why. That's why it's not going to happen in Virginia. That's why it's not going to happen in most states. But it is something that people should push for because the whole point with electronic ballots is this is easier and we're going to get the counts back faster. How's that worked out? (laughs) It takes us days to find out who won a state. Argentina found out in an afternoon or an evening who their president was. And thank God Malay won that election. Speaking of Argentina and incredibly high inflation rate, I know that your next question is, will inflation go above 10% again? My answer is it never went down. (laughs) Um, No. Okay. So, you know, we've talked about, we've done whole episodes, right? About, you know, what the real inflation rate is and what the problem is with, you know, debt monetization and, and, you know, fiat currencies and, and, you know, the Keynesian monetary system that we basically are practicing right now, or even quasi MMT style system that we're practicing right now. So I, I won't necessarily rehash all of that, but I will say the federal reserve is, is indicating that they might pivot next uh, quarter, or I, I guess I should say this quarter since it's January now, it's looking like in March that they're going to start cutting interest rates. And the fear that I have is that we will see a rehash of the 1970s. So there was, after Nixon took us off the gold standard, you had the Nixon shock, you had stagflation. And what happened was, is that you had a period of high inflation and high uh, unemployment. So the Federal Reserve raised uh, raised interest rates to deal with the inflation. It, it looked like inflation went away. So then the Federal Reserve cut interest rates to deal with the unemployment. And then inflation came back. And th- they went through this cycle something like three times before finally a guy named uh, um, Volcker came into office that was appointed, ironically enough, actually, by Jimmy Carter was the guy that that, uh, that confirmed him. Yeah. And Paul Volcker's uh, response to the inflation crisis of the 1970s as chair of the Federal Reserve was to raise interest rates so high that it could not you know, possibly come back for a fourth or fifth time. Yeah. I mean, he raised interest rates to like 20%. Yeah. And that caused a lot of problems, but it, it finally put an end to the, the 1970s stagflation. It, it, it put an end to inflation. You haven't necessarily seen a repeat of that ever since, in part because it would be unbelievably expensive to, to repeat that. The United States was not nearly as much in debt at both the public or private sector as it was in the late 70s, early 80s. And so in the late 70s, early 80s, you could deal with 20% interest rates, at least temporarily. You, you couldn't even get close to that today. You would trigger a, a global depression yeah. if you triggered that today. So I think that the Fed is done raising interest rates because they think they've won the war on inflation, but yeah. I don't necessarily know if they have won the war on inflation. So I think they're going to cut interest rates, which might reinflate the everything bubble, which again, we've also talked about. But the, the real danger is that that could bring back inflation. Now, the counter argument is, is that there might be a delay 
And so you might not actually see a return to inflation this year. You might see it at the end of this year or beginning of next year. Yeah. And if that happens, that's actually a huge boost to Joe Biden's reelection efforts because you might see the tangible benefits of reinflating the everything bubble without the tangible downside yeah. of returning inflation. I no, I think that's what's going to happen. I, I don't think I don't think the Fed ultimately look, there's always a lot of pressure because the powers that be and this is both Republicans and Democrats. Can we just admit this yeah. real quick? If you want by, if you are looking for bipartisan analysis of why both parties suck at something, yeah, um, inflation is the is the marquee example because whether it's FDR or Richard Nixon or you know Barack Obama or Donald Trump, right? Like they've all been horrible on it. They, Alan Greenspan was horrible on it, and Alan Greenspan was supposed to be a big free market advocate. Paul Volcker was the only guy that actually had the guts to do what what actually needed to be done. Um, to the extent that he could. So yeah, I think what's going to happen is I think it's, it's largely political motivation for doing this. I think what you're going to see is people are one of the big issues right now is young people saying, how the heck do I buy a house? How the heck do I do all this other stuff? And so I think um, Biden is going to try to do it with a combination of forgiving student loans, which he can't do. He can only transfer the debt onto taxpayers, uh, direct subsidies, uh, probably some more tricks with respect to lending practices. Cause I sat in a meeting not long ago where that's, that was recommended again. I said, yeah, didn't we try this in the early two thousands and didn't lead to a massive housing bubble. And then they're going to lower interest rates, which is going to cause everybody that's been like pent up to buy a house right now that didn't want to buy it at a seven or 8% interest rate is going to be like, Oh my gosh, 4%. Let's go get one. And that's going to cause housing prices to increase. Um, yeah. Cause the housing prices really haven't come down that much. They're a little bit, but not much. Well, that, that the price of the house is going to go up, but the monthly payment is actually going to go down a little bit from from the interest rate yeah. component. But again, that that's just going to it's just going to feel that exactly problem. is what I was talking yeah. about. That will reinflate the everything bubble. It yeah. will send asset prices higher. Yeah. Now, if you have a recession, right? Because th we could have a recession and so the Fed could be trying to get ahead of the ball and cutting interest rates in anticipation of a recession. Yeah. The argument is, oh, they're cutting interest rates because they think they want inflation or some people are saying no, they're cutting interest rates because they're trying to head off a, a recession that's coming. Those two circumstances would lead to wildly different results. If it's they think they want inflation, you could cut interest rates and you'll just reinflate the everything bubble yeah. and the inflation might be delayed. If they're trying to head off a recession, well, then that goes back to your previous questions. I mean, that that could massively hurt Joe Biden's chances of winning re-election. I, I think, I think that I think right there is the biggest reason why they're they're projecting the Fed is projecting that they're going to be able to reduce interest rates by the end of 2024 down to about 4.5% from where it was at its high of seven point something. Um, and I think, I I don't think they do think that they're ahead on, I don't think the money is the motivator. I don't think that inflation is the motivator. I think it's who's in charge and can we keep our side in charge? And so if we take, if we ease off of people a little of the pain right now, maybe they'll forget how bad Joe Biden did and maybe they'll reelect him. And then on the other side, maybe then they'll go ahead and ratchet it down. I mean, Republicans and Democrats are both guilty of doing this. Hey, Nick's pointing at the uh, <laughs> at the timer, and neither of them let me say anything on this until it already hit zero. So I'm not listening to you. Yeah. You know, the counterpoint <laughs> is that Tina got a whole free minute to herself before Hamilton started. Yeah, she the did. Timer she started the, the clock. <laughs> so, but just so you know, too, when we when, when Christian talks about, it, I don't think it was ever actually below ten percent. If you actually look at the old model of the of the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, where they used to to you know count inflation, if you use that model, which changed in the '80s, inflation actually is closer to around ten percent right now. Even though right now they're saying it's three percent. So that that kind of shows you where there's a bit of a disconnect. And people know it too. Yeah, you can't go to the grocery store 
and think they're actually telling no, don't you the don't you know truth. Paul Krugman said that we won the war on inflation at very little cost yeah. <laughs> who knew that rich well, boomer very, who already got his yeah. thinks that the economy's doing great and definitely a very little cost to Paul Krugman <laughs> yeah. all right so here we go we're gonna we're gonna do a little bit international now all right ready okay will the war in Ukraine end in 2024 and how no it will not end so Christian says no so it's not even going to end do you, do you think it's just going to stay in kind of perpetual stalemate? It'll, it'll become a frozen conflict. Frozen conflict. So we're looking like Korean Peninsula, right? It's Korean like we Peninsula gotta... or, I mean, until last year, Armenia and Azerbaijan, that that did end, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Cyprus, right, between the breakaway Turkish the state in the north and the, and the Greek state to the south. You know, examples like that, Transnistria between Moldova, uh, Moldova and the, so the breakaway Russian state. So you're saying that basically the Russians kind of semi-keep control of Donbass... I mean, the, the fact that the Surovictin line couldn't have been broken and it looks like that it, it, I remember in like October or sorry, um, August and September, it looked like the Surovictin line was going to be broken. The Surovictin line was the makeshift defensive line that the Russians had constructed yeah. from the Dnieper River all the way to basically the, the Donbass to Donetsk and, and Luhansk. And so it was like running through the flat plains of the Zaporizhia Oblast. By the way, I can name more provinces in Eastern Ukraine than Nikki Haley can. Um <laughs> So, so it was running through this Aparigia Oblast. And if you know anything about history, that is like perfect ground for what we would call blitzkrieg or maneuver yeah. style warfare. Tank warfare. I yeah. mean, that, that's where some of the largest tank battles in world history took place during World War so, II. So, what, so what's going to, so what's going to be the, you know, this is, you get, you get the three minute version of this. Like okay. What it's going to be the. So the reason I say all this is it looks like that the Ukrainians were going to break through and they couldn't even with Western tanks, they had like leopards and M1 Abrams yeah. and, and British tanks and, and they couldn't break through. In the summer. And so, I mean, what that's telling me is that the Russians have innovated. They've changed their their strategy to a, a, a one that works now. Yeah. And they're able to hold on to the land that they currently have. It would take years and way more casualties than we've currently seen. And there's already been like half a million casualties in this war for the Ukrainians to actually break through and reach the Sea of Azov. So my earlier optimism that the war could end last year, I think has, has changed dramatically. I think if it ends this year, it's not going to be through a military victory on the side of Ukraine or Russia for that matter. I think it's going to be through diplomacy. And ironically enough, it could actually come from the White House because if Trump or, or sorry, if Biden could actually get a peace deal with Putin and, and, and end that war, he could run on that in the general election and say, see, look, I brought peace to Europe. And now we don't need to spend another hundred billion dollars on Ukraine. Okay. And, and now, I, I, I the last thing I'll say on that point is that, um, have you seen that like you know outlets like the New York Times and stuff like that are starting to run headlines saying things like you know in order to win Ukraine doesn't actually need to retake all their territory. Yeah. So if you look around, you can see they that the, the cathedral is starting to change their messaging on this. I think we're going to have a new current thing coming up, and that new current thing is going to be peace negotiations. Yes. Yeah. So here's uh, okay. I want to I want to lay some groundwork from this and Christian, who always will like tell it like it is. Okay, initially, like in March, when this first kicked off, the March when the war first kicked off, um, I said that I didn't think the Russians had actually done a good enough job with their opening and offensive, and the end result was going to be that extended supply lines were going to lead to an insurgency operation within the within the back was that was going to cause them problems. Christian, was I correct? 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then that, le- and then I said, what would happen after that is that you're going to see a reconsolidation of of lines to where Russia could actually do a better job of of maintaining their supply lines, and then as more Western aid came in, Ukraine was going to be able to make some advances and, and solidify their internal lines. So I said that. Then when Ukraine started their offensive, Christian, what did I say when the Ukraine started their offensive? You and I argued on this briefly because I was more optimistic about the Ukrainians, and yeah. I remember Nick telling me he's like, they're not going to be able to to push here. They're, they're going to take a lot of casualties and get very little ground for it. And you were right. And the only reason and for I was that, wrong. Well, the, the <laughs> only, the only reason for that was everyone kept talking about, Oh, they're giving him the leopards. They're giving him the, the Abrams. They're giving them all. I'm like, okay, here's the difference. It is one thing to hand a soldier, a very sophisticated anti tank weapon, like a javelin and say, sit here and shoot tanks on a road. Right. It is a very different thing to then hand them massive, expensive offensive capability for which they have had no real formal training on and say, now conduct a, a massive coordinated combined arms offensive. That Those are two very, very different things. The, the defense has an advantage with respect to you can do a lot more with an undertrained, undersupplied force, provided that you use them strategically and asymmetrically. When it comes to offense, that's a totally different game, and neither side has air superiority. And so I, I agree with Christian to the extent that there's going to be some, this is going to be somewhat frozen. However, I actually think that the, how we define victory is going to change on this one. And the end result is going to be Russia has to be offered something to disengage. Ukraine has to be offered something. Both sides need to win in order to actually cease hostilities. Cause I don't think either side is happy with just a, a frozen border. So I'm going to predict what I predicted six months ago on Twitter and got screamed at by everybody. Ukraine is going to be offered a massive aid package. And I think they're probably going to give, uh, and if, if uh, what's his name? Um, Zelensky. Zelensky agrees to it. I think he's going to be offered the Nobel Peace Prize. And, and, and like when I say a massive aid program, I mean like, Matt, they're good. The West is going to rebuild Ukraine bigger and better, but that'll be the only thing that Biden builds back better will be Ukraine. Right. So I should invest in Ukrainian construction companies. So I think what's going to end up <laughs> happening is Russia is also going to get concessions. And here's what I see happening. Russia keeps the Crimea. There is a kind of an autonomous zone set up for the Donbass where they get to have some sort of elections in whatever future that'll be discussed at a later date. But Russia gets to be a part of that like oversight of, of what that election looks like along with like the UN or the NATO, not NATO UN. They're also going to promise Russia that Ukraine does not join NATO because there's no reason for them to do that. And both sides are going to get to go back to their people and claim some sort of victory. So Donbass gets some sort of kind of like federalist uh, approach to their own governance, which allows them to be a little bit more pro Russian Russia gets to claim that they save the the you know ethnically Russian people of the Donbass by their invasion. They get to keep Crimea. Ukraine gets to claim that they pushed Russia out of it. So Zelensky gets to say, I didn't lose any Ukrainian territory due to the Russian invasion. Plus, he's going to get to distribute hundreds of billions of dollars in aid money in order to help reassure his own reelection. And they're going to give him the Nobel Peace Prize and just make him the darling of Western Europe. I think that has the potential. Um I think that has the potential to happen in 2024, but I think it's it's it could just as easily happen in uh, 2025. If if peace, the last thing I'll say is if peace happens, it will be because the U.S. decides to yep. pivot diplomatically and broker peace talks with the Russians, probably for political reasons to yeah. shore up Joe Biden. 
if if that doesn't happen, then then I, no, I don't think the war ends this year. Well, and, and then again, I'm going to say this so the audience does not misunderstand me. I'm not saying I want this to happen or I want that to happen. I'm saying that based off of my analysis, what I understand about warfare, counterinsurgency, domestic U.S. politics, and things like that, I think that is the I, I think that is the most likely and and honestly probably the best outcome that you could hope for that actually stops hostilities. Otherwise we do end up in some sort of situation where we just have people taking pot shots, um, uh, uh, you know, over the lines for, you know, a decade now. And I, I don't think either side really wants that in the end. I think both sides would like a way to extricate themselves from the situation. Uh, but Zelensky is, yeah, Zelensky is going to understand at some point that the moment the, the moment the U.S. or whatnot says no more, no more. And what he really has to worry about is that if Republicans win, if Trump wins, not only is it going to be no more, but it's not going to be. But here's a, you know, here's a billion or here's a trillion dollar or not a trillion, but here's a hundred billion dollar aid package. So if, if Zelensky can get this deal to give Biden a win and give himself a win and get a ton of money for rebuilding Ukraine, that might be his best option. Putin also understands that, look, if Trump comes in and says, Hey, we're going to have peace. That doesn't mean it works out all hunky dory for Putin because Trump's more like Trump's a lot more likely to say, Putin, you sign here or I bomb the living piss out of you. And Putin realizes at that point that if the U.S. gets on with, with respect to air power, Putin loses everything. So there is a clock going right now with respect to the U.S. election cycle. And if, if Putin and um, Zelensky don't understand that their best time to negotiate a deal is probably immediately, they're, they're, they could both be in trouble. Do you got anything on that one, babe? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. So next one. Um, will China in 2024, will China invade Taiwan? No. Christian says no. No. Tina says no. I say no as well. I, I think everybody talking about, oh, China could invade Taiwan. We've talked about this before. Um, there's actually a really- Yeah, we did a whole episode on why it doesn't make sense. Yeah, there, there's a there's a really interesting, um, really interesting interview as well where uh, Sean Ryan was interviewing, I think it was, um, oh, dang, uh, former head of Blackwater. Um, I just forgot his name. I can't believe that. Uh, but it was really interesting. He was talking about it as well, that like logistically it is a lot more difficult to invade Taiwan than, than people think it is. You got a bunch of talking heads on the news that just look at Excel spreadsheets and say, oh, well, China's got a lot more people. Okay. And have they ever conducted a complex amphibious operation over 100 miles of ocean that you only have about two months in which to strike against a force which then, then call up 2 million worth of reserves, not to mention have the full backing of the U.S. naval and air power? Okay, yeah, that's what makes doing that a whole lot harder than just saying, well, didn't we do it at Normandy? <laughs> well, and, and not only that, but you kind of have to look at the trade-offs. Could they maybe do it if it was a long, grueling, horrible process? Possibly, but is it worth it to them? You know, what do they gain in it? Well, the, the Oh, big, it's worth it to them. If they, if, if they had a guarantee that they would succeed no matter how long or how many casualties it would Eric take. Eric Prince, thank you, Russell. If if they had a if, if Xi Jinping had a guarantee that he would win, oh yeah, he would care about his casualties. He would do but it. But there is yeah. no guarantee of that. No, no, no there is no guarantee. In fact, it's I, I would give them like I, honestly right now if if China were to if if China were to start the planning right now and conduct an invasion in let's say eight months uh, of Taiwan, uh, and well, and pick it when the the weather's correct for the, um, I, I give them a less than one percent chance that they can actually pull it off. And, I, and in fact. I give them a less than 1% chance of them being able to pull off with no U.S. troops on the ground. I think sometimes when, when people look at China versus, you know, Taiwan, I think, I think they're looking at numbers against numbers and that if 
Taiwan were to win, that would mean that China's wiped off the face of the earth. <laughs> yeah, That's not yeah, the case. No, no. It, it means how far can they go or how long can they hold out and how many casualties can they inflict to where China decides that this is not a good idea. So, Nick, um, I know that you skipped this one, but I really want to ask it because I, it's it's in the is news. Is this still a lot. about Taiwan? Or are we no, no, it's it's because I, I think we're all in agreement. All right, that so we all agree. Taiwan China China does not have the military power. The only re and again, there'll be a lot of saber rattling. If, if people, but, yeah, there'll be a ton of saber rattling. The the other thing too that people need to understand is that one of the reasons why Xi Jinping is actually looking for a conflict right now is when you have thirty million single. Uh, when you have 30 million more men than you do women in your country, India has just surpassed you with respect to population. Everybody's kind of, or I should say everybody, a lot of people are kind of turning against China with respect to their manufacturing base because it's not the cheapest, it's not the best value for manufacturing anymore. He almost needs a conflict due to the old adage that war abroad is peace at home. And so there, there is massive instability that is, in fact, we didn't put that up there, but I honestly think 2024 is going to be the year that everybody finally acknowledges that China is not overtaking the United States and is actually in a really, really bad position. I think that window is passed. China is shrinking. Their population is falling for the first time Massively. since since Mao slaughtered 100 million yeah. people. And, and you know, the factories are pulling out. The Chinese economy is in a massive bubble. They're in a larger real estate bubble than we are, yeah. right, with the whole ghost cities thing. And, and uh, you know, the currency crisis. Inflation. And, yeah, there's, yeah, there's so many problems. The other side has problems, too. That's a common saying. And I think it was um, – I think it was one of our, our uh, you know, political mentors that actually – was it was – it, um, uh, who was it that said that the other side has problems too? It's it's um, Virginia guy. Oh, I don't remember. Morton was it Morton Blackwell? I don't think so. But are you just talking about like just in general? It's a, it's a, no, no. It, like like it's a campaign adage, right? You know, oh, when, you, when oh. you're running for office, you have to remember the other side has problems. Oh yeah, too. yeah, that is Blackwell. Yeah, that but it apply it applies yeah, in yeah. geopolitics as well. Yeah, I knew it was Morton Blackwell. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that the, I, I think it's more likely that this year the the general public starts to realize that 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 window is passed and that China has many problems of their own than it is that China will conquer Taiwan. Yeah. Um, or, or even invade for that matter. The next question that I want to ask you is um, how is the situation in Gaza and Israel going to end this year? Or is it going to end at all? Well, I'm, I'm going to... So... <sighs> Israel just announced Israel just announced that they killed, I think, one of the top leaders with respect to the planning and, and conduct of uh, the October 7th uh, massacre, um, which I, I think is a huge, you know, a huge victory for them. That Here's what I will say. I, th I think I think t a lot of things are at play right here. Um, I do think Israel is is very, very serious about just destroying Hamas's capability. Um, I don't think they're going to allow Hamas to run Gaza in the future. I think that's, I think that's over. And I don't think they're going to accept anything short of Hamas is no longer a thing. The problem is, is Hamas does have broad based popular support in Gaza. It, it, it's not a hundred percent of, of the Palestinian, the, the Palestinian Arabs that live in Gaza, but they, they want to, they want an election. I mean, yeah, it was a plurality, I believe, but um, when they were interviewing people and, and doing polls on whether or not people supported yeah. Hamas, the answer was yes. And whether or not they supported the October 7th attacks and the majority of the majority of the people in Gaza said yes. So this idea that, that Hamas is just operating, operating with impunity, regardless of what the people's that's not the case. Yeah. So th that, that actually creates the political situation after the fact to be far more complex. However, I, I do think there's, there's been a lot of times where Israel has been kind of like 
talked down and said, all right, you know, hey guys, it's, you know, it's time to accept some sort of settlement that you may not like, but it ends the hostilities. This one, there's two things about this. I don't think people understand. One biggest terrorist attack in Israeli history. Um, it was the the single largest loss of life by the Israelis in, in like a non-combat environment since the Holocaust. To, to put this in perspective, if you look at the number of casualties, civilian casualties that the Israelis sustained on October 7th, it would be the equivalent of a force coming over, let's say, the, the southern border in the United States, murdering 20 million people, kidnapping tens of thousands of them, and then going back down into Mexico. If that happened to us... What, look what we did. If that happened to us, uh, Mexico wouldn't exist anymore. Look at what we did when two planes. Yeah. Uh, look, look what we did when we had we had four planes hijacked. Three of them crashed into their intended targets. We we, we lost, I think, grand total, if you count everything, probably between around 4,000 people. And I'm counting people that died later and whatnot. We invaded two countries, completely overthrew their governors and sustained wars for two decades in, yeah. in Afghanistan and 15 years in Iraq. So this idea that, oh, we need a ceasefire right away because... I'm sorry, Israel right now is looking at this like, screw you. And the other thing that people don't seem to understand is who Hamas attacked. They didn't They didn't attack the headquarters of the Likud party, right, on October 7th. They attacked kibbutz. That's like the left, that's the most far left wing of like Israeli society. Kibbutz are essentially like communal farming areas. Now, I'm not saying they're like straight up communists, but a lot of them operate under very, very, what we would call left-wing concepts of economics and equality. A lot of these organizations, a lot of these, these uh, areas have been the ones that have been the most friendly toward a two-state system, the most, you know, attempting to be the most understanding of the Palestinian plight and whatnot. And guess what it afforded them on October 7th? Death. Nothing. Death, rape, murder, kidnap. So uh, like, can I dig down just a little bit on this one? Yeah. Okay. Um, we have a different dynamic now, and that's what's really interesting is um, what this is doing to people around the world and in the U.S., because I'm seeing things I never thought I would see on our soil. People saying things, people um, rallying for Hamas. There are people on the side of Hamas yeah. here in our country. Typically, they're mostly on the left. Um, and what's what's amazing to me is they're now coming out like you're telling you're talking about the twin towers coming down and what we did as a result of that as a response but we have a different dynamic now we've got people who got a hold of of bin laden's letter and started thinking that bin laden had a good point you know i guess we really had it coming and i mean there's people completely denying the Holocaust now. You have pro-Hamas demonstrators out in front of the Holocaust Museum having demonstrations and then and then talking about, oh, well, we don't really mean this against Israel. And But then everything they say out of the other side of their mouth is, is anti-Israel and like gas the Jews again and things like that. I hope we don't get taken down for me saying that. They are saying things that are disgusting and the whole the whole academia everything has primed our young people to think that this is that whole oppressor oppressed thing and if if you've ever if you could possibly be classified as an oppressor then you have anything and absolutely everything coming to you so i mean we even saw people talking about um you know 
do would indigenous people in the U.S. have the right to go in and just murder people in their beds, children of, you know, whatever, um, because of what happened to their people in the past? And they're saying, yes, yeah. Well, yeah, they, they, these people have it coming because they are from the oppressor class. And so we, this dynamic is insane. And so I kind of wonder what's going to happen in the U.S. as a result of this whole Israel conflict, because this has not just stayed there. This is all over the place, really concerning stuff. I, I think I think it's fascinating that it only took it only took about two and a half decades of critical theory becoming one of the one of the predominant um, ideologies within the humanities to take students from saying never again to globalize you know. the antifada. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all it took. It took, it took two and a half decades. It took one generation. It took one generation of critical theory um, as the, the primary explanation of disparities within society to, to take a, a significant portion of our, our university uh, both from the educators and the student perspective at, at Ivy league schools in the United States, again, to go from never again, I can't believe this ever happened. How is this possible to, well, this decolonization is messy. Oh, yeah. um, and, 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 and it goes, and it goes to what you were saying before with respect to the whole concept of when, when you, when you divide the world into oppressor and oppressed, and then you, you put people into the oppressed category, all of a sudden, whatever they do in order to escape oppression um, is justified. And then on, on top of that, whenever you ask them, well, wait a second, how do you develop these categories and, and, and what constitutes these categories and what's your evidence for those categories? Well, that's just to them. That's just evidence that you haven't been woke yet into, you know, what, what they're desperately trying to convince you of. And, you know, and it's, it's funny. I look at some of the comments on this stuff too, and, and people will come in and say, well, like, I don't, I'm, I'm not on Hamas's side. I'm not an Israel side. I'm on America's side. Okay, great. I'm not saying the United States has a constitutional obligation to protect Israel. I'm not saying that by the same token, I can look at Israel and I can look at Hamas and I can make a pretty damn big distinction between those two things and certainly root for one side over the other. Like this is not an either or proposition. I can be patriotic and believe the United States is way too involved in, in global conflicts. And at the same time, look at a global conflict, recognize that we do not have a constitutional obligation to, to intervene and at the same time, think, gosh, damn, I sure hope the people not murdering and raping little girls. I sure hope that's not the side that wins. I'm getting, yeah, well, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm not quite done yet on this okay. one because I'm getting pissed. I'm getting pissed about this. I'm getting pissed about watching people that I, I genuinely respect and like within the political side, not seem to be able to distinguish between two things. Two things can be true at once, right? It can be true that. It is not the United States' responsibility to expend blood or treasure to defend Israel as a state. It can also be true that it would probably be much better for basic humanity if Hamas doesn't win. Can, can we come to that conclusion? Is, is that, I'm sorry, is that, is, that not, um, is that not America first anymore? What an absolute load of horse crap. Gosh damn, that pisses me off so bad. I, I hope I, look, there are plenty of things that the Israeli governments have done that I have not liked or not agreed with. Why? Because it's a government. There's plenty of things my government's done that I don't like or agree with. Holy crap. We dedicate about 70% of our podcast to that. But there's not a huge line of demarcation here when it comes to Hamas and Israel. Oh my gosh. 
Damn. I remember saying right <sighs> when we did our first episode, it was either our first or second episode after the October 7th attacks. And I said, ask yourself who you would rather be captured by, the IDF or Hamas? And, you know, I, th I think that the answer to that actually really, you know, kind of sums up this whole conflict here. Look, I've been very critical of Israel, and you know this. We've mm -hmm. had conversations. I remember you and I had a conversation like a few weeks before the attacks. We, we were talking about Armenia and Azerbaijan, and I was bringing up how upset I was about Israel supplying weapons to the Azerbaijanis and yeah. their ongoing oh, yeah, totally agree. war against Armenia. And, and, and from Israel's standpoint, there's a geopolitical reason to do it because our, uh, Azerbaijan hates Iran mm -hmm. and Iran hates Azerbaijan, even though they're both Islamic countries. And so, so it makes sense for them to cultivate relations with a neighbor with Iran. But from my standpoint, who is very pro-Armenian, that's the one Christian country left in the Middle East. And, and indirectly, Israel supplied a bunch of weapons to an Islamic state that, that is brutally subjugating those people. I had a huge issue with that. And I wish more people would bring it up. But I, I say this because none of that distracts from the fact that Hamas are a bunch of barbaric, murderous thugs who have an ideology that's basically a, 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 a cult of death that there's not a single value or principle that those people espouse that, that are Western values. There's, there's not a single reason why anybody in the West should, should remotely support these people. And... You can criticize the Israeli government all day long. You can criticize the actions of that government all day long. You can, you can take whatever position you want on that. None of that distracts from the atrocities that Hamas perpetuated and openly says we will continue to perpetuate as long as we yeah. exist. We've done two podcasts on this immediately after the October 7th attacks. I recommend that anybody who hasn't go, uh, gone and seen those go back in our catalog and look for October 2023 and, and you will find them there. There's a lot of stuff that we talked about in those two episodes at a time when I think that that what you're seeing, especially on the left, is this, quite honestly, the logical end result of an oppressor versus oppressed yeah. out, outlook well, on the world. And you're applying it now to Jewish people. You're not just applying it to white men now. Yeah. You were applying it to us for a long time. And you know what? Hopefully, maybe you'll see some pushback against this ideology now, because if you're Jewish in the United States, for a long time, you supported the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. For a long time, you actually supported funding many of these institutions that are, that are pushing, especially within academia, right? There's a lot of, of, of Jewish donors for these, for these um, places, like Bill Ackman is one who went to Harvard. He was a huge donor of Harvard, and now he's calling for the, the resignation of the president of Harvard yeah. for refusing to condemn genocide, along with a bunch of other stuff. She's now a plagiarist <laughs> as well. <laughs> and so my, my hope is that, that some of these Jewish Americans that have a lot more influence within some of these institutions that are pushing this destructive ideology, yeah. maybe they'll finally wake up and realize it's not going to just stop with, with you know, ridiculing white men and, pro and promoting them as the evil that's perpetuating, you know, we need to decolonize America and we need mm -hmm. to deconstruct whiteness. No, you are also now white in their, in their eyes. You are <laughs> yeah. also a man now in yeah. their eyes. You <laughs> fall within that oppressor category within their eyes and you're never going to get out of it. Yeah. yeah. And so, we need to, you know, what we need to do is we need to decolonize the university of this destructive ideology yeah. and remove it <laughs> from being, per, you know, perpetuated on on impressionable students. And so, hopefully, if if anything positive out of this conflict comes out of it, it will hopefully be the destruction of this terrible ideology. But you know what? I'm not going to be holding my breath for it, unfortunately, <laughs> because yeah. Yeah. 
we've seen how things have been going. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I, I, you know, I see comments where it's like, yeah, but Israel is doing this totally unethically. All right. What's the ethical way to do this? What's, what's the ethical way to root out a, a terrorist organization that regularly uses civilians as human shields, that regularly uses hospitals, mosques, and other areas that, are generally, that are, are, yeah. are generally protected by the Geneva Convention as, as their headquarters or storage? What, what's, the, what's the ethical way to go in and do it? Because here, here's what I see. There, there's a lot of bombing, but ahead of that bombing, Israel said, evacuate this particular portion. And Hamas directly stood in the way of them being able to do that. And now they're still going door to door in order to conduct operations. What I see is a lot of people that have absolutely no idea how these operations are conducted, telling telling someone like me who does know how these operations are conducted because I've conducted them that, oh, well, I, I can't believe they did this. Okay, well, do you want to learn why they did this or that? And again, I'm not saying that every military decision they made may have been a good one or that they couldn't have done something better. But I, I do find it fascinating the number of people with zero knowledge of how difficult it is to conduct these sorts of operations, sharing with us their grandiose wisdom on, on how it should be conducted and what would be better. And I'm looking at it going, you know what I know about this? I know that you have no idea how this is actually done. Um, I mean, look, I, I the, the amount the amount of effort the United States military, um, at least ground forces and, and others, went went to try to prevent civilian casualties. The, the thing is, is people always look at that and they will look at the civilian casualties and they'll laugh like, oh, that's a joke. What about this? What about that? Look, if you're talking about the firebombing of Dresden, if you're talking about dropping nukes on, I, I get it. I get it. There was tens of thousands of civilian casualties. If you talk about Iraq and Afghanistan, there was, there was definitely um, a lot of civilian casualties. The thing is, is that what I want people to understand is that when you look at war, here's what you notice about all war conducted against by all armies and every area of civilization across space and time. There's a lot of civilian casualties. The question is, is which militaries actually go out of their way and put themselves, put their own troops in significant degrees of danger in order to try to mitigate those civilian casualties. And, and I will tell you right now, the United States military put us in greater danger in order to try to minimize civilian casualties. The IDF puts them their own soldiers in significant danger in order to try to mitigate civilian casualties. Does that mean you will eradicate all civilian casualties? No, it, it doesn't happen. It, it especially doesn't happen when you're fighting an enemy that is constantly putting their own civilians in harm's way on purpose because it's the best way to manipulate people that will then show up and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe Israel, the IDF did this. Mm -hmm. So all, all I'm saying is, look, Try, try to have a little appreciation for how difficult it is to actually do this, to actually conduct these operations, because it is not easy. All right, so we got uh, another question here that we wanted to go into, and that had to do with... Guess what just happened while we were speaking? What? The president of Harvard resigned. Really? Yay. While we were speaking. This oh, happened like, my God. This happened like five minutes ago. So the president of Harvard, who had, I think, 50 different accusations of plagiarism against her on top of not being able to condemn genocide against Jews uh, before Congress. Now, keep in mind, this is the same Harvard president that if you misgendered someone, you were creating a hostile space and needed to face you know, extreme scrutiny, if not potential expulsion. But if you were advocating the open genocide of a people group based off of their ethnicity, well, you know, they would have to check on whether or not that was a free speech issue. You. Not to mention the fact, like I said earlier, over 50 different accusations with respect to plagiarism. Um, so she has just resigned. And I'm going to tell you, Randall, the best way to celebrate that is to go to Good Ranchers. That's right, because Good Ranchers right now for a limited time in January as an effort to kick off 2024 in the best way 
possible is offering you more free stuff. So if you go to Good Ranchers and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, they're going to give you a year of free chicken with every single order. So they're going to give you two pounds of Good Ranchers chicken. I need you to understand something of a Good Ranchers chicken, all right? This isn't the sort of chicken that you just walk into any grocery store and, and buy, right? This is chicken that actually did get to go out there and live the sort of organic lifestyle you think it lived when it says organic on the side. Keep in mind that the rules for organic are actually pretty loose. Like I think if you show a, if you show a chicken a picture of, of a hill, that counts as organic now and you only feed them certain feed. Okay, but if you actually want the sort of chicken that is living this sort of life where they get to go up there and scratch up bugs and get some protein in there along with the whatever kibble they're being fed, you want, you want Good Rancher's Chicken. Because that is a chicken that has lived a full chicken life and now is just going to be more delicious as a result. This is guilt-free chicken because when you eat this chicken, you know it didn't just survive some horrible existence, you know, cooped up in a cage somewhere. This is a chicken that got to see the sunlight and eat some bugs. It enjoyed its time here and now it's serving it an even greater purpose of feeding you and your family. Thanks to Good Ranchers. So, Use promo code Nick, go on goodranchers.com, promo code Nick, sign up for one of the subscriptions in January, and they're going to give you free chicken for the first year of that subscription on every order. This is like almost $200 off. Like that's essentially what this $189. is. $189. $189. If you subscribe in January. And with the inflation coming in 2024, that's like a million dollars in savings. That's <laughs> I can't believe that you go into this and give backstories on these animals we're going to eat. Oh, yeah. No, it's because they, they lived a good life. And, and animals that were treated well taste better. That's just... That's I want to eat animals with facts. a backstory. It's facts. <laughs> So thank you very much. Good, Rich. All right. So, all right. As promised, we're going to move in. We're going to move into the last 30 minutes here of the episode. And now for these last 30 minutes, your questions, right? The things you wanted us to offer predictions on that we haven't offered predictions on because Nick went on a segue yelling about (laughs) conducting counterterrorism operations in urban terrain. All right. Which look, it happens sometimes. I can't help it. I apologize. All right. So here we go from Zim, the despot we have, thank you very much for the super chat. Removing someone from the ballots is a surefire way for said person to win. It worked for Lincoln and I think it will work for Trump. Thank you very much, Zim. Yeah. That's uh, the last time that there was a, a very, very active and successful attempt to remove a presidential candidate from the ballot was actually Lincoln uh, leading up to the election in 1860. And I want to say, I think nine out of the, he 11, didn't even appear on the ballot. Didn't even appear on the most southern states. I think we all know nine. how that ended. I think it was in nine, yeah. nine, uh, nine states. He did not even appear. And, th- and again, I say Confederate. This is before they left, right? Because the the first state to leave was um, South Carolina. South Carolina on Shortly December twentieth. The election. And, yeah, it was December twentieth in eighteen sixty. Is when um, South Carolina became the first state to secede from the union. So I want you to imagine a bunch of states fully a part of the union just removing a candidate from the ballot. Um, that's, that's actually what happened in the 1860 election cycle. So no, I, I think you're right. I think ultimately this is actually going to galvanize support. It's certainly going to, um, it's really going to galvanize uh, support for Trump among his base, but it's, it's also not gonna, even going to hurt us in these blue states. We're not winning those states anyway. They, they, yeah. Our our side's not winning some of these electoral college votes anyway. So they'll remove him from the ballot, and he's still going to win. So. Have fun. Have fun with that. Maine actually matters, though, because he could win one electoral. Theoretically, he could win the whole state. That's unlikely. But he very well could win the um, second congressional district in northern Maine. He's won it 
He's won it twice, so yeah. he's, he's probably favored to win it no, again. May makes more sense. I also think what's going to be interesting in some of these cases, you've you've written his name. <laughs> I said this uh, when the whole thing happened with the Supreme Court. Um, I said, well, having your name on the ballot's not the only way to win an election. <laughs> Yeah. And I had a bunch of people like, what are you talking about? Like, I want to write. They don't campaign. realize that Nick won the big, the biggest write in campaign in Virginia history. Yeah. yeah. So it yep. can be done. Although in Colorado, they actually did it so that he couldn't even win a write. Yeah. He can't even. Um, I don't know if that's true on Maine. We'll, we'll see what happens. But I, I think what will happen is, is that people will just simply write him. Like if they actually, yeah. if, if this holds out, which I think it's going to be challenged and, and probably stricken down. But if this holds out, I think people are just going to write it in and then you're, you're going to see legitimate what all all the left is doing right now is they're giving legitimacy to the claim that okay you're tired of rigging the elections in private so now you're going to do it right out in the open and and you're going to legitimize in people's minds the idea that this this election cycle is not legitimate you took away my ability to vote for my candidate so i'm not listening to you yeah. and and the problem is is that's that's not an illogical conclusion if you're going to do things like this you, we've got people who like when we were talking about presidential uh um, predictions and things like that. People that were kind of mad that we didn't bring up RFK and uh, Junior and uh, and like Joe Manchin and those and <clears throat> what's going to happen. Honestly, I don't think any of those guys are going to pull enough votes for it to matter. And I think RFK is not a conservative at all, but he will win some of the votes on the right. I think he'll get more votes from the right than he will from the left. Um, just because there's plenty of people that hate Trump and will want that third way, even though RFK definitely does not align with us. He says a no. few things that people love and people are so willing to fall all over themselves to, um, become an RFK sycophant just because, you know, he is pretty against vaccines and a few other things, but he's really, really not conservative yeah. and he's not a libertarian. So None of that makes sense to me, but you know what? This is the world we live in. Yeah. Kevin, thank you for the super chat. He goes, there are 800,000 houses in foreclosure or forbearance, most of which were the results of COVID error issues and programs, which have now ended. I can't see the rest of that oh, question. There. One moment. Thank you. Uh, this will come to a head. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think it's, it's interesting when we look at the way that the government has, and, and some of this is, um, some of this could, could be chalked up to certain things with banking practices, but a lot of that has to do with the way the government's manipulated the process. Um, I saw a report once, and this was a while back. I'm not claiming this is the case now, but I saw a report a while back that there was actually, this was like, I think in the early nineties that there was more vacant uh, rooms in New York city than there were homeless people. Uh, the problem was, is that, you know, for whatever reasons they, they weren't fully constructed or they needed to come up to better code or they had fallen into disrepair. And when you looked at the reasons why that was happening, a lot of it had to do with government regulations, taxes, and other interventions, which didn't make it affordable for people to actually maintain those properties. And the end result is, is that you have a, a homeless crisis because you, you won't allow for new construction or you've made it unprofitable to engage in new construction. And then every time the government has tried to step in and say, well, we'll take it over. They actually make things worse. Um, and, and so I, I think, I think you're right in the sense that, um, it, we don't, it, it's not like we have a, a housing crisis that can't be solved, the problem is we have to ask why, why aren't the people that are actually constructing homes, why aren't they able to do so at rates that would allow it for, to be more affordable? And almost every single one of those answers goes to some sort of government intervention, whether it's inflation, whether it's bad subsidization, whether, regulations. It's, whether it's regulations, whether it's, you know, every one of those new good ideas that a politician passes increase the cost of something somewhere. 
And then you don't, when you buy your home, you're thinking, oh my gosh, why is it so expensive? Those evil builders or those evil banks. And you know, look in one-off situations, that might be the case, but ultimately a bank wants to lend you money. Ultimately a builder wants to build houses. This is how they make money. If they're not doing it, right? <laughs> or, or it's, or it's becoming really expensive. The first question you should ask is why is it so expensive? Because I'll guarantee you, it's not that this is all not just getting eaten up in, in profits because everybody decided to be so greedy, right? Because if that was the case, if greed explained, if, if evil profiteering explained why there weren't enough housing or why things were so expensive, well, then all it would take is somebody to come in, enter the marketplace in a competitive fashion and undercut them. And we see that happening all over the place, either with competition or new technology. And yet we're not seeing it as much here. Why? Because the government has largely intervened and made competition very, very difficult. Partly because a bunch of lobbyists were sent by builders associations and various things like that in order to bar entry into the market to basically protect the big guys against uh, smaller, well, smaller guys so coming it, in and, and taking some of their market share. My experience, my experience with a lot of my personal experience, with a lot of the associations though, they've been trying to like, look like we need it. Every time you pass more regulations, every time you pass more proper requirements, every time you do that, it causes the price to go up like that, that, that cost goes somewhere and it's going to go into the, the end price of, of the house. And that's what I want people to understand is that yes, generally what happens in industry is people fight regulations until they realize they can't win. And then they try to control the regulatory right. process. Yeah. Um, oh, Mark, it's all built. It's all done in the name of safety. Yeah. All of it. A hundred percent. It's always in the name of safety. Yeah. Uh, Mark asked the question, who will be the VP choice for Trump? That's a great question. I, don't, okay, I know who I think. All right. Who do you think, Tina? Carrie Lake. Okay. Tina thinks Carrie Lake. Um, I just hope it's not Nikki Haley. I don't think, no, I don't think it's going to be <laughs> Nikki Haley. I, I honestly don't know. I don't know who it's going to be. I don't think it's going to be Nikki Haley and I don't think it's going to be Carrie Lake. I don't think it'll be Vivek because, oh, come on. Let's go. <laughs> I would love for it to be Vivek, to be completely honest. I wouldn't. I wish Trump would adopt much of his platform because Vivek is saying, I mean. <laughs> I like some of the stuff he says, but then there's I really like like, something, I there is something I'm, there I can't there, trust. There's a generational separation here. Everybody my age and younger, all for Vivek, yeah. everyone t five, ten years older than I am. They think Vivek is untrustworthy. I think part of the I, I reason is him. because he's so articulate and he's able to say what a lot of people believe better than they themselves believe it. And so therefore, he must be a con artist is what a lot of these people are concluding. No, I or he, no, he must I've, be. I've seen him answer a few questions in a very, very slippery way. Um, some of his LBGTQ answers were weird. And also, um, you know, I... I've yet to see, I've yet to hear a statement from him that I disagree with. Yeah. I, Same. I, uh, I, I tend to want to vote for somebody with. that has a similar worldview to me. Um, I think he and I don't have the same worldview. We, we have some of the same political ideology, but our worldview is very different. And so I usually, I mean, if it's, Anyway, I, I usually want to know somebody has a Christian worldview to vote for them. Um, not to say that I won't vote for somebody if there is no other option. Um, it's just not going to be my first option. I, I like I like Vivek. I, I think that um, I, I think that some of the concerns over Vivek, I think some of them are a little bit overblown. I don't think he's just a plan for the WEF. You know, like the same crap they they could say about Javier Malay and stuff like that, which I think is just utterly ridiculous. But by the same token, I don't think he's earned like I don't think he's earned complete trust yet. No, um, I I think he does very very good at at um, I think he does a very very good job at talking off the cuff, engaging with crowds. I've been really impressed with his capability of doing that. His his recall um, on the spot 
uh, I think is very impressive. I think um, a lot of people just don't trust. They don't, because of everything that happened with COVID and all of the vaccine mumbo jumbo, uh, because of the way everything went down with that and the money sloshing through the system for COVID vaccines and all of that, and the fact that he made um, millions off of all of that. Well, I, it's, I think people are going to, even if it was mainly like investments in biotech stuff, people are untru- untrusting of, of basically people who made a lot of money off of something they found to be a, a huge I, I, uh, problem. I can understand that. But if you're also in the position to make money, then you, you just kind of do it, I think. Um, but Andrea in the chat said that Vivek was a, a grifter. I don't think there's any bigger grifter on the Republican stage than Nikki Haley. She is the big, in my opinion, I totally agree with Hamilton. She is the biggest grifter out of all of them. She, she lured Boeing to South Carolina with a bunch of subsidies, leaves the governorship, goes off and becomes, you know, UN ambassador, leaves that. And then, and then ends up actually, no, sorry, before she does all that. And then after she, she leaves the governorship of, of uh, South Carolina, she then ends up on their board. I mean, that is like textbook definition grifting right there. I'm yeah. going to lure with taxpayer money, a company to relocate here, multi-billion dollar fortune 500 company. And then I'm going to end up on their board after I'm, after I'm like done with my term as governor. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, look, I, I get it. it. It's, this is, this has been a long question too, with respect to <laughs> it, here, here's part of the question on this. And, and I'm not playing devil's advocate because I think it's shady as hell, but I do want to ask this question. Most governors, I don't know a single governor that doesn't think that you use tax breaks and subsidies to entice businesses to come to your state. I don't know a single one. All of them think it works that way. The vast majority of my colleagues in the General Assembly think it works that way. So it's not as if this is some sort of weird political concept. If I were to go out there and ask most citizens, hey, if we had the opportunity to get a massive company to relocate and start a plan in this district and provide thousands of jobs, do you think we should give them some minor tax cuts up front? They'd probably say yes. So, okay, so if a governor does that and everyone agrees, I'm not saying I agree, but everyone, the majority of the legislature, the majority of the voters all agree, this is a great idea. Thank you, right? And then when you leave office, years later, that same company says, hey, do do you want to be on the board? I mean, I'm just saying that that is not as, it, it is easy to look back now and be like, that's totally nefarious. And and again, it's nefarious to me because I don't believe in the subsidies and, and the manipulation of the tax code in the first place. Right. Right. That That's what I find the, the, the truly problematic part. I don't find the problematic part that as a representative or a governor, you advocated. So let's just say that she advocated for Boeing to come to South Carolina because look, we got the lowest taxes. We got the best regulatory environment. We've got a best, we've got a good transportation system. Um, you're going to have an educated workforce. You know, this is going to be a so much better place. You're going to save, you know, 3% on your overall, you know, profits and whatnot by relocating here. And they did. And then six years later, they asked her to serve on the board. Would that be unethical? And, and the question is, is if the answer is yes, then what you're saying is, is that I want a governor that doesn't do any sort of, like, even if it's an ethical deal, right? No subsidization, no tax credits. I don't want a, an elected official to be do any deal with any company that they might've interacted with as an elected official. If that's the case, all I'm going to point out is that you are making a different incentive structure now. That's true. And and so that's fair. That, that's a fair point. But the, the counter to that is that 
that that same person, Nikki Haley, is now going out there and saying things like, you know, the attack on Israel on October 7th is an attack on America. Yeah, and as yeah. Vivek pointed out on the debate stage, what Hamas did was evil and wrong and it needs to be called out. But you're failing a basic test of geography. Yes. If you're going to say it's an attack on America. True story. Because if it's an attack on America, that, necessi- that necessitates a military response from America. Yeah. Nikki Haley well, is also a neoconservative. No, that's my, and that's my main. So that's the thing. Like my major problem with Nikki Haley is not that she ended up on the board of Boeing, yeah. even though I have a real problem with the way that she enticed Boeing to come to South Carolina. My real problem with Nikki Haley is I fundamentally disagree with the way that she looks at foreign policy and the way that she looks at a lot of domestic policy. That's what disqualifies yeah. her for me. We haven't and, done and, a good job getting the, the war hawks out of the party. Well, and, and it's not, and, it, and it's, it's not even like the war hawks. Like what I'm upset about, like, is I hate these terms. Okay. What I don't like is people that are constantly looking for the United States to be the world's police force. That's what I don't like. And Nikki Haley fits into that. And she has a financial incentive to fit into that. And that's what I think. That's where the ethical, that's where the ethics of this become problematic. Um, all right, CVA Buck said, do you think we'll see the AI singularity in this year or soon after, and will it lead to a nation or company becoming unstoppable? No, we're unfortunately yeah. not that far. Unfortunately. <laughs> we're not. Well, I mean, so like the concept of the singularity is interesting. You know, Hamilton and I have had these conversations about things that yeah. are usually unrelated to the podcast. I, I'm very familiar with AI technology, but I don't understand the singularity. So the singularity is this idea. There's there's different interpretations of it, but the, the one of the more common ones, because it's a, it's a buzzword. It's almost like the word neoliberal. Sure. People think that, you know, people have different interpretations of what that means. Um, and usually for bad, it's usually a negative word that people throw out there to try to like, you know, shut somebody down. Singularity is kind of a techno equivalent of that in the sense that people have different interpretations of what it means. But the traditional definition is that the singularity is this idea that there will come a point in time where technology has advanced so much that it basically becomes exponential. And, and it's almost like, you know, technology and people merge and and people have different ideas of what that means, right? It could be everything from, from, you know, well, let's get, let's go to the, like an Elon Musk example that he gives, because Elon Musk is actually one of the guys that I think does a good job of taking the very complex and technical aspect of this and put it in terms people can sure. understand. But it, it, it's the idea of, again, the, the human technology merging where you have a chip, yeah. right? A Neuralink or yeah, something Yeah, a like Neuralink, that. Yeah, which allows it in you, people's heads. a Neuralink, which allows you to imagine being able to Google things just in your head. Um, you know, again, I think we're, we're far away from that, <laughs> but it's, it's the idea that you would have just access to that sort of data by the being, matrix, by essentially being plugged in. I don't want to become the Borg though. Yeah. <laughs> that's an the older matrix. reference, but, but, that's, but that's, his, but that's, that's Buck's question, right? Yeah. Like it, it, because technology is increasing exponentially, like an example I like to use is that it took as far as we know, right. And, and taking out like hot air balloons, right. It, it took. 10,000 years of human history to make an aircraft that would fly 60 seconds. But it only took about 60 years of history after that to make spacecraft for us to land on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I the can real already, question I can, is why I, did it take us 10,000 years to I, invent a hot air balloon? Just or something wait like. till the chat lights <laughs> up with people going, that was all done in a studio. Nick, you clearly haven't watched enough history channel after midnight though, because don't you know that the aliens are there? Uh, speaking of which you could go back to our previous episode from the summer and watch our episode about aliens. Um, uh, so like, like my, my take on the singularity thing is we're way far off from, yeah. from something like that. I don't, know, I don't know what way far off means. I don't think it's happening this year. 
Uh, all right. Posty Prue says, thank you for the super chat. Thank you very much. Being as how the cycle of nations is cyclical, can you foresee the history of the Crusades and Inquisitions being relived on a global scale? I certainly do. So for for those of you who are wondering when they talk about like the the cycles of, of nations, kind of like the, the easiest understanding of this would be the whole, you know, good men create, you know, good times, good times create weak men, weak men create bad times, bad times create good life. But if you, if you look at it, there's like, there's different people that have theories on the cycles of nations. Some of it has like 11 cycles. Some of it has like six cycles, but it's this idea of you, you generally start like a lot of them will start with, you have like tyranny, which leads to kind of like, uh, you know, religious conviction and patriotic fervor, which leads to, you know, uh, you know, rebellion, which leads to the establishment of, you know, security, which leads to the establishment of what widespread wealth and prosperity, which leads to, uh, you know, greater decadence, which leads to a loss of moral value, which leads to tyranny, right? Like this is a very rough off the top of my head version of this, but Christian, correct me. That's fairly. Yeah. You know, what if Altist actually talks about this a lot in yeah. some of his videos, because he does a lot of, of, you know, history mixed with, you know, anthropology and sociology and, and yeah, some in fact, let me just do a quick plug for Rutyard real quick. We we've done, we've done a couple interviews with Rutyard. We've been on his podcast. He's been on ours. He has a really interesting channel called what, uh, what if alt hist? Um, and he, he will, he does a lot about the, the cycles of countries and things like that, which I think are, he does some great videos, yeah. really good videos. That, that interview that we did with Rutyard is one of the ones we'll be publishing in January. Yeah. February. That was a really fun conversation. I wasn't able to listen to it when you were recording. Yeah. So I'm actually really looking forward to listening to that episode when it goes out. Um, I, I, to, to, to answer this, this question though, I actually do take the the view that history is more cyclical in nature, not exactly cyclical. You know, the famous Mark Twain, you know, line yeah. that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Yeah. I, I'm a firm believer in that. And that's actually a break from the Western tradition. That's more popular in, in um, Eastern cultures than it is in Western cultures. The Western tradition is, is Whiggish history. Yeah. The idea that history is a straight line. Yeah. In fact, this is what the left actually firmly believes yeah. that history is a straight progress. line towards progress. Yeah. Everything's towards progress. And conservatives tend to be somewhat skeptical of that. But if you come from a Western tradition, you still have this idea that history is still a straight line. If you go to places like India or China or Korea or Japan, though, it I mean, it, the opening line of the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, one of the most yeah. famous pieces of literature in Chinese history is the empire long united must divide, long divided must unite. Yeah. And if you look at Chinese history, there's a reason they say that, oh, because yeah. that is the history of that China is right history, there. Yeah. And I actually think that history is more in that mold than it is in this Whiggish history view that is very popular in, in, in the West. And I, I think that a perfect example of this is actually look at wokeism today. Yeah. Look at leftism today. Leftism is a form of it's it's a more atheistic one or it's yeah. a more secular one, but it is a form of puritanism it is a form of it is an inquisition in of itself in many respects unfortunately it's an inquisition it's a religion with no redemption yeah it's original <laughs> yeah. sin without a christ savior yeah yeah and so I, I i think that there's absolutely some truth to be said there now he used some examples like the crusades and inquisitions but there's other examples that you can look out throughout history that that i i think are, are maybe more accurate but it's in that same mold like the of players well, change the players yeah. change, but the stuff well, I, I would tend to, here's my thought is, okay, see if, see if this makes sense. I feel like 
History is a straight line with a pendulum going back and forth, and it makes a circle at because. So basically, you're going back and forth in a straight line, and and the pendulum's creating the circle back and forth. So I don't necessarily think it's not a straight line, and I also don't think it's just a cycle. I, I think it's kind of a hybrid. No, I, I think that I actually think that makes a lot of sense uh, because you do you do see that over time. So I think that I think that's a great. You may have just you first of all. Let's copyright that. And then, <laughs> uh, but I, I will say this do to like in keeping with the theme of the show with predictions for 2024. Um, I, I do think that, that, cyclical nature of civilizations makes a lot of sense along with what Tina said with the idea that yes, things, things progress in a, uh, in a, in a general direction, right? Technology tends to improve. And, and right. so, however, you can have, you can't have major falls, right? Like you can't have like the fall of the Roman empire. And then you actually have a hiatus with respect to a lot of, you know, technological advances for a period of time. I, I don't think we're at that stage yet. I think what, I think what we're kind of seeing if we're looking for a historical aspect to this is, I think we're kind of somewhere in the in the late uh, Roman Empire stage or the late Roman I think Republic. We're more in the late Roman Republic. I think we're in the late Ro- Roman Republic stage, and and the real question will be is are are we are we at a point? I, I think in twenty twenty four, what you're going to see is a lot more division. Um, and what I'm really waiting to see in twenty twenty four is how people respond to that. Like, do people move? Do they vote with their feet? Or do they just yell about the circumstances wherever they're at? And I, and I don't mean to be flippant. Like I understand people fighting for, you know, what they believe and trying to save their state or whatever it is. But I, I do think you're going to see a lot more ideologically driven moving because we've already started to see a, a portion of it. I think that's only going to increase. Um, but 2024, and, and until the election happens, I can't really tell you what what major stage I think we're at with respect to kind of the future of the country and, and whatnot. But I do think you're going to see a lot more divisiveness before you, you actually return to to an element of greater unity. And, and in part it's because when people always talk about why can't we focus on the things that unify us? Well, because in, in many respects um, there, there's nothing that I can unify with when it comes, there's nothing really foundationally that I can unify with when it comes to critical theory um, or, or what we would call woke progressivism. Now, when it comes to like liberals, um, that, that if you're looking at like classical liberalism and you're looking at kind of the two trajectory where you've got like the conservative wing of classical liberalism and you've got the more liberal wing of classical liberalism, I can work with those people. I can live with those people. I can find compromise. I can, I can find stuff like that. But with modern leftism, leftism, there's no, I, I can't, they don't want to coexist with me. <laughs> I don't want to share a country with those. Yeah, people. and and I think that's gonna I think that's gonna come to a head in twenty twenty four and in in various ways, regardless of wins the election. I just don't know how it's gonna manifest. All right, Happy Cappy said, uh, "Thank you for the question. Question: If Trump is unable to be elected, will things go all bad for our country?" Um, I don't think the key is necessarily Trump. Uh, in fact, that's one thing I'm a little bit concerned about with the right it, is the kind of the overdependence on Trump will save us. Um, I, I certainly understand the appreciation for Trump. Um, I, I certainly understand the appreciation for some of his policies. I'm going to tell you right now, when Trump ran in 2016, he was not my choice in the primary. Um, I wanted Rand Paul. Um, because ultimately, I, I'm not looking for, I already got my savior. Um, I'm not looking for one, and I'm sure as hell not looking for one in politics. Uh, having said that, I, I think what they're doing to Trump right now is really dangerous mm-hmm. 
for, for the country as a whole. So if, if Trump doesn't get, if Trump gets on the ballot and doesn't get elected, I, yeah, I think there's going to be, I think there's going to be massive problems. If something else were to happen though, and Trump would not be the nominee, let's say, let's, let's say Trump, like, I mean, he's old, right? Let's say something happened and, and, oh my gosh, he, you know, had cancer and he died. Does that mean the, the country is going to hell? No. Um, but I think Trump is not just a person. I think Trump's become a symbol of something. And, and that's part of what it is. But but ultimately, I think what the right needs to understand and, and to to include, you know, and again, if Trump gets the nom- nomination, I'm voting for him, right? <laughs> like, I, I can't imagine a scenario where I'm not voting for Trump if he gets the nomination. Right. I mean, I guess if he came out and said, never mind, I want to confiscate your guns, that would, I, I'd change my mind. But um, I don't anticipate that happening. But ultimately, if this isn't rooted in something deeper, like if what you believe in and what you're fighting for isn't rooted in something deeper than a political figure, that's really problematic and quite frankly, a little bit scary. I think uh, I'm going to address this too. Um, I think temporarily things will get worse if, if, um, if the left wins basically this, this election cycle, Yeah. then I do think things will get worse um, on multiple fronts. However, Um, usually the party that's not in charge has the wind at their back and the longer one party is in charge, the more disillusioned people become with that party. And, um, I think that there will, I think that if the Democrats win the next presidential election, that they are going to face a crisis, um, that the Democrat party has not faced before Um, just because I think they're going to have such a high attrition rate and you're going to have so many people becoming disillusioned with the democratic party that um, it will go our way after that, because I think we will continue down the track. Biden's taking us down. He's going to ban all these appliances. He's going to continue to do insanely ridiculous things to try to appease the most extreme elements of his party. And, Um, At the end of the day, you're going to have a lot of people who usually make up that middle swath and they're the ones that decide every single election. You've got this, you know, 10 to 15 percent of people who swing back and forth. And I think they will lose almost they will lose tons of their swing voters and they will lose people who used to religiously vote Democrat, I think they will start to lose those people too. And it's going to be a crisis for them to try to get them back. And that is my prediction. If, if the left wins the yeah. nom- the presidential, I got to call an all bit here right now because uh, someone in the chat reminder said, Nick, since you're all alive, I'll throw this out there. Found out my wife is going to be having a daughter and choosing a name. I chose a middle name of Tina, <gasps> partly inspired by Mrs. Freitas. Oh, oh my god! That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's congratulations. Cool. <laughs> that's really cool. No, thank you very much for telling us, Ryan. That's awesome. And congratulations. That's great. I'll tell you what, being and being a girl dad, man. I'll tell you, you think you're a tough guy, and then you have a little girl, and you find out what a yep. sap you are. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're gonna go through some of these others a little bit faster because uh, we know we're a little bit short of time. William McCorpel said, "Will Biden make it to November?" We already did. We that already kind of talked about that one. I think most of yes. us believe he will. Tina doesn't think. Uh, Tina thinks he might survive till November, but he he won't be the nominee. Uh, Trevor asked the question: Would you send your child to a military service academy? That's a good question. My um my son uh, Luke is actually probably going to be enlisting. Uh, next year. So the, the answer is, is that if they, if, yeah, if they got into a military service Academy, I, I, I would certainly uh, be proud of them for achieving that. That's very difficult. 
I know because I tried to get into West Point when I was in high school and they looked at my math grades and they're like, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> but but my, my, uh, one of my best friends did get in and I got to give him his first salute when he graduated. So that was pretty cool. So yeah, I, I do think, uh, I mean, look, here's what it comes down to is I, I still think there's value in serving in the military. I think that I, I think there's value in, in going to a service academy. The real question is, is, um, you know, are your kids prepared to go into those environments and, um, understand kind of the, the psychological aspect of it, the philosophical aspect of what's going on. Um, I, I still believe those are institutions that are worth uh, competing for fighting for and attempting to, to save. I, I don't think they're totally gone. Um, I, I think there is a problem with respect to upper management <laughs> and some of the, the bureaucratic management. But again, those are still institutions that I want to save. And, and, and again, I'll, I'll go back to this. My job is to, my job as a parent is to prepare my child, uh, to go into the world and, and face it as it is, not how I wish it would be. And what I've said before is, um, you know, as your kids get older and they get to age appropriate stages where they've got to face challenges, I always say that I'm, I'm not going to prevent my child from going out there and getting bruises. I am going to try to prevent him from getting scars, right? I'm going to try to prevent him from doing anything that would, you know, just be, um, negatively impact their lives in some sort of drastic sense, but they, they've got to be able to go out and, you know, the quote from Reagan is that, um, you know, freedom isn't passed along, uh, in the bloodstream that it, it needs to be protected, preserved, and then handed off to the next generation to do the same. And, um, and I think there's a lot that can be gained, uh, both from a, not just a, a patriotic sense, but from a skill sense and a networking sense as well. And, uh, I, as, as much as I have a problem with us foreign policy, as much as I have a problem with the, the current administration and some of the administrations I served under, I still don't regret, regret my time in the military. Um, so I hope that answers that, that question. Uh, Double Dub, thank you for the super chat. Your opinion on ranked voting is a method of beginning to undo this binary system that perpetuates extreme camps. Oh, my gosh. So it's I've become actually, popular lately for Republicans to hate on ranked choice it, voting. It is. I've actually carried legislation before on ranked choice voting, which is going to get some people to be furious with me because of how it's manifested in other states. The, the whole concept of ranked choice voting is, is that when you go to the polls, instead of just voting and saying, I want this candidate, what you would do is you would say, this candidate's my first choice, this is my second choice, this is my third choice. If your first choice candidate falls off, then they will go and they will look at who your second choice was. The idea behind it is that it will actually give, it will achieve two things. One, it will give third parties um, the ability to actually be a little bit more competitive in these races because it's not just winner take all in, in the first ballot. The second component is that it would lead toward theoretically it would lead toward kind of kinder election cycles because now you're, you're not trying to just destroy your, your primary opponent. You're actually trying to, build consensus within the electorate around a particular thing. The reason why a lot of Republicans absolutely hate this and think it's a threat is because it hasn't worked out well uh, in the states that have actually done it like Maine. And so look, I don't, I don't know the answer to that one. I, I used to think it was a I lot more. Maine had uh, jungle primaries. I, Maine has some sort of ranked choice primary. Maine, uh, has, Maine has ranked choice voting. Yeah. So yeah, it, but that's, that's not in a primary situation. And so that's it's in the that's, general. It's in the right, general. Yeah. Right. So um, it, it would be interesting. I, I, I have since the, the way I've kind of evolved on this idea is I think conceptually there's a lot there, conceptually there's some stuff that makes sense to it. If people can, if people can just sit around like the historical examples they have of, well, this happened in Maine and the Republican won and then they lost and it's because Democrats rigged it. Look, here's all I would ask. Look at it conceptually first and determine whether or not you think the idea has merit. 
And if, and if it's no, that's fine. I, when I looked at it conceptually, I said, okay, I think there may be some merit to this. I've also seen some problems with it. I, I think that the best way to probably practice it is probably with internal party processes. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably the best part to practice it in, in part because I think people get confused about how it actually works. Yeah. And if you're showing up to vote and you've never voted in ranked choice, if you've never voted in ranked choice before, and now all of a sudden you're doing it, it, it can be confusing. And I think it can lead to results that people might not have intended. So you, you want an informed electorate. And I've had people that I trust that I agree with on some things, disagree with on others, say, Nick, I see what you're trying to do and I appreciate it, but here's some of the problems. And they brought up good points. So I think that if we're going to do, if we're going to, if you're going to do ranked choice stuff, it really should probably be something that's on the internal party uh, process first, or maybe in what they call nonpartisan election cycles. So sometimes they do that with things like local townships or, or school boards or things like that. That might be a better way to do it so people fully understand what they're doing because, again, there's been situations where I think ranked choice voting has probably achieved its its intended results, and I think there's been other times where it's created some problems. So I'm not a uh, – put it this way. I am not advocating for ranked choice voting, um, but I do think it's something worth taking a look at. Um Okay, Robert Ball, will we ever stop sending money to Ukraine? Yeah, I think we're I think we're going to. Um, Not until the peace deal, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, I think we'll continue to send money no matter what. But actually, will it be I, for this war? I, I, I don't think, know. I think what's going to happen is I got to correct myself, Nick. I said not until the peace deal. We'll be sending the money lot. even after the peace deal. Yeah. The, 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 America, the America, I think what's going to end up happening, this is my prediction. We send money to everybody. It's not what I want to happen. It's what I think is going to happen. I think they're going to get a peace deal on the backs of American taxpayers. And, and the argument they're going to make is, well, we'll spend far less money um, achieving the peace than we would through perpetual war because nobody's going to consider, well, hey, what if we just didn't make this our taxpayers' responsibility? It's like politicians don't seem to grasp that as, a, as another option. Um, so I, I think that's probably what's going to happen is that ta American taxpayers are going to probably in some significant form finance the initial the final peace deal that will come out of this. Again, not saying I like it. I'm just saying, I think that's what'll happen. Intensive Care Bear. By the way, we owe uh, Andrea Intensive Care Bear. Thank you. Uh, a thank you. She sent us some very delicious cookies, um, of which I ate a lot. <laughs> what? I just got back. Okay. I just got back last night. Sorry, dude. From Florida. Not my problem. And I, this is the first I've heard about cookies and you've eaten most of them. I didn't say most. I said lots of them. She said a ton, dude. Okay, the good news for you, Christian, this. is there are more. Yeah, there are more. <laughs> we'll see who gets to the kitchen first after this podcast. <laughs> All right, Tensa Quiver, so what are your predictions on those 90-day goals? Oh, she's she's calling me out. So we do a 90-day challenge within our community. And we and haven't updated anybody. The challenge ended in, I think, late November. You know what your 90-day challenge is going to be? What? Stop the Democrats from passing terrible legislation in Richmond in the next yeah. 90 days. <laughs> well, but no, she's got a good point. So on our on our community on our community chat, we do like, we, and we, we've talked about it on the podcast before, we do 90-day challenges where we talk about things that we're all going to work to improve like spiritually, relationally, emotionally, physically, intellectually, financially, like all, yeah. all this stuff. Right. And it just keeps everyone focused on things that you can actually control within your own life. And, um, 
I, I will say that we did keep up on we did keep up on going to the gym. Christian yep. has been faithfully going to the gym. I took most of December off though because I was in the UK for the yeah. first half, and then I was in Florida for the second half. So I, I'll be planning on going back to the gym starting this week. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm already getting ready for my planting season. For and Nick uh, is stuck to the MMA. I have. And that's been good Hamilton's for him. Hamilton's kind been good of stuck to the MMA. I've kind of stuck to it. I was out of town a lot you during were. December as well. Yeah. Yeah. One of my goals was I wanted to go fishing. Remember me saying yeah, that? And, and I it. did not go fishing. But She failed, Andrea. <laughs> but but I, I did. Now, I never told everybody that this was part of what I wanted to do was yeah. to lose weight. But I have lost 20 pounds. So there is that. Uh, she's getting she's getting ready for for mother of the bride. Yeah, I got a long way to go. I must have taken still. on those 20 pounds then. Because <laughs> I still have a long them? way to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I, I mean, but you're, you're absolutely right, Andrew. We do need to do an update. I think it's, I think we might actually try to do something like that inside the uh, community chat this year. Yeah. Just to, for everyone those, but that is a good point. And you're right. We've been bad. I apologize. It's all my fault. I take full responsibility, but actually I blame Christian. All right. So <laughs> Micah Raleigh asks, I oh wait, you just, sorry, sorry. Dude, gosh, dang it. This technology, <laughs> Mike Raleigh asks, I joined a little late, so forgive me if this has already been talked about, but do you think uh, we will even have an election this year considering what the Dems are trying yeah, to do? Yeah, you're going to need to rewind yeah. it to the very beginning because yeah, I mean, we totally went through Bottom this. line is we all we all do think, yes, we're, we're still going to have an election despite what Dems are doing. <laughs> Payday asked, was Alex Jones right? About we, many things, we, yeah. We, we, we kind of joke. It was funny. Joe Rogan had a thing on this too where it's like some of the most, some of the crazy things Alex Jones has said is like, oh crap, there was actually an element of truth in that. So like, I don't think Alex Jones is right on everything, but I think he's been right on far more stuff than he's he exaggerates for. a lot of things yeah and he, he has does. his own persona and stuff like that that obviously turns people it turns me off but yeah, like, yeah. i joke i joke with nick all the time when the cameras aren't rolling <laughs> and i'm like we need to have an alex jones was right jar yeah <laughs> and see how fast it fills up all right yeah, we but gotta if do we're not careful people will like sue us for millions of dollars for various oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's that, true yeah all right amy asks uh what would y'all say to people who feel voting has come to that which is just the lesser of two evils amy i, I would say that everybody has thought about that about voting forever like there's very very few election cycles in u.s history where everyone was just like oh my gosh this is this is it i can't choose because i'm torn between two uh, candidates so i both great, love right like that just <laughs> yeah. uh, that just doesn't happen very much in, in electoral politics um um, but what I would say is that, look, what what I think for some people, it's a very, very genuine concern that that neither party or um, or any of the candidates really do a good job of representing their values. And the, and the only thing I can say on that is that if, if you're expecting that to change just based off of how you vote, it's never going to change because the people that are the most active within politics are the ones that generally get what they want out of politics. And my problem is this, I don't want politics to, to be the end all be all of what everybody gets or wants out of life. Um, but I will say this to the extent that you do have to be involved in politics. If you want to see more of what you're looking for, you're either going to have to work harder to foster or encourage that. And I don't mean like all the onus and responsibility is on you, but like Tina told Tina and Christian, these two right here, the whole reason I ran for office one time is like, well, Nick, you're complaining about stuff in a district that you could win and you just don't run. So at what point do you have a responsibility to, to go to the next level beyond voting, beyond volunteering, beyond doing all this other work and actually running yourself? And, and that was kind of the argument that convinced me to, to step up and do something. So that's all I would say is that if, if you want to see something different out of the candidates that are running, you're going to have to work specifically toward that purpose. And one of the I think one of the best ways to do that long term is we also have to change the nature of the culture because candidates reflect culture. 
And, and that's, that's what we're seeing right now. That's why a lot of people are, are frustrated. Um, Jay Solar 590, do we want Biden to be the nominee so we can beat him? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we sure do. Because yeah. yeah. I am not sure of our chances against anybody else. I, but yeah. just because it's Biden, I think we can beat him. Yeah. Uh, former Wokey White says, what would happen if RFK Jr. wins? You um, won't. Well, okay, but what would happen if he did? And I would say that, honestly, you would get a very, very liberal administration, uh, but you you wouldn't get the same sort of, you wouldn't get the same sort of censorship you saw, um, at least not being perpetuated from the top, and you wouldn't see as much collaboration with like big pharma and big tech. RFK is an old school Democrat. Yeah. Like old school, like 1960s or 70s Democrat. Yeah, but he's still a big, he's still a big spend, big borrow, big welfare state, big government intervention. Like I think he's all he would, de- I do think that he would defend many of the, the the bill of rights though and things like yeah yeah you know he's more of a liberal when i talk about like the left version of classical liberalism and the and the right version of classical liberalism i put him on the the left version of classical liberalism that's a guy i would not agree with on 70 percent of policy but there would be areas where we would agree and we would be operating from a a similar worldview when it comes to what is a standard for like measuring truth like i i don't think he's the sort of guy that would would just throw out objective reality when it didn't suit. His he hasn't purposes. endorsed things like the government in order to protect my democracy. We need to have government censorship of speech online. Yeah. yeah. So- <laughs> but, but overall I'm telling you anybody that's going to vote. And I think Rocky was talking about, he's going to vote for RFK to just, you know, stand in the face of the two party system. Like, okay, you're going to get a guy you don't like as chief executive if he wins, but he's, I don't think he's going to catachrome said, do you think it will be actual violence or the guided tour? If it's the right doing it, um, I, I will say this, if, if Trump were to win re-election, I think you would see massive violence uh, from the left because the left openly encourages, and I, I know people are going to get mad at me about this. Again, I didn't say liberals, I said the left. Mm-hmm. The left openly encourages violent protest. Well, their they leaders will say, you know, fight them in the streets yeah, and things like that. Just they just do. They, they let it go. And then the ones, and the ones that don't sit by passively and don't say a whole lot when it's happening. Oh, yeah. Now, on the right, it depends on the nature of it. I do think you could see... Uh, violence from the right. I don't think the the right is beyond in, engaging in inappropriate acts of violence. I mean that that's a thing, and I think we should own up to that when it happens. But what I would say is that I think it's far less likely to happen. And and I will say this: right wing violent rioting, I think, is far less likely to um, manifest itself in things like looting or, or things like burning down small businesses. Um, the right doesn't loot. The right. I mean, not, what, not the right tends to be lo- really focused on law and order. And so uh, th- that's one I, of the I think reasons you, would see, you don't see a bunch of looting. I think, you know what I, I was about to say? I was about to say the right doesn't loot. The right flies the army of Africa over the Strait of Gibraltar. And <laughs> that, that was a Spanish reference. Yeah. That. <laughs> All right. So that, that's why I think, I think you would still see, um, I think you would still see some like civil disobedience, but I think it would manifest itself very differently than the way it manifests. However, the, the media would definitely... Yeah. Make it out to be extremely violent. No matter what happens, it would be, if the left does it, it's going to be a mostly peaceful protest. And if the right does it, it's, it's going to be deadly. the worst insurrection yeah. since the Civil War. Uh, Roya Turo, prediction. Uh, it'll make Antifa and BLM reemerge if any Republican president wins. I, what do you mean reemerge? Yeah. They're still around. Well, BLM has been neutered quite a bit by their own fiscal mismanagement. Antifa is still around and, and, and still doing stuff, but they will definitely, Antifa more, I think, and I think other organizations along that line uh, will, will definitely reemerge. Daryl Fletcher, is the GOP making a movement to watch remote ballot boxes in response to the 2000 Mules documentary? In, in states where... Um, 
in, in states where they actually have control of the legislature and a governor that will sign laws, you're, you're seeing a lot more push toward um, accountability with respect to the voting process. In states where it's either split or Democrat-controlled, you're not. And that's that's how it works. So we, we, had a, we had a ton of bills that we passed to the House of Delegates this last year trying to deal with voter integrity while still making it easy to vote legally. And all of them died in the Senate. So this is a this is an ideological split with respect to uh, how election processes should go. And um, go look at your state legislature and look who's in charge. And that'll tell you everything about what's going to actually pass. Um, Caleb Reed said, question, regardless of national polls, who will win Iowa and New Hampshire specifically? I'm sick of hearing about national polls and we don't nominate, nor do we elect a president nationally. Uh, that's a good point. I think Trump wins Iowa. Um, and I think Trump wins New Hampshire. I don't think. Oh, you mean in the primaries? Yeah. Okay. Because I was like, New Hampshire's probably voting blue in the general election, but and Iowa's going to vote red in the general election. But yeah. I mean, I I think Trump wins every state. So I mean, I think that I, this, I'm, I'm having a hard time identifying. You think Trump will win every state in the primaries? In the primaries. Oh gosh. Okay. In the primaries. <laughs> I was confused. Um, for a second. I, I don't know. There there might be some. I'm trying to think of any scenario where a state might break for one of the other candidates, but I just don't think there's. Here's here's what it comes down to. Remember what you're talking about in a primary. You're talking about plurality. All right. So if if Trump gets 38 percent of the vote among a field of six candidates and nobody else can break, you know, 15, then that's a blowout and Trump wins. And I don't know another candidate. I can't think of a poll in a single state where Trump isn't leading the pack. So I, I think he wins in Iowa and New Hampshire. Again, I think Biden's the presumptive nominee unless something significant happens. Uh, Beaten to goo. Question for Nick. What is your plan when it goes bad? That's a great question. We've done entire podcasts. On we've that. done we've done some stuff on that. We will probably well, no, actually we haven't. We've talked a lot about like what happens, but we haven't talked a lo whole lot about like, okay, what are my plans for it? But um I think we're going to dedicate a whole episode to that rather than try to do it all right now. But one of the things that we focus a lot on this podcast is like, look. The goal should be to prevent things from going really, really bad. How do you do that? Well, it turns out that a lot of things that you actually have control over in your life, you, you have relatively little control over who pres the president will be or the governor will be, or even your, your state representative will be. But you have a lot of control over what you do with respect to you know, your family, your, your own housing situation, you know, growing food, raising animals. And it turns out a lot of these things have, have a bunch of other additional values apart from preparing for the apocalypse. So I would just say, focus on the things that you can control that just makes sense, right? Improving yourself intellectually, improving yourself uh, financially, whether it's just being more disciplined in your budgeting, um, you know, making sure that you can actually do some things. We've had a lot of fun raising chickens and doing other things with the garden. I find it therapeutic, honestly. Um, and it, it's a, it's a way to actually build resilience. And so I, I think a big part is, is build resilience by focusing on things that you can actually have some effect on and, and do that. And ultimately I think that helps prevent things from going really bad, but if it ever does go really bad, well, you're in a much better position. So I, I'm an optimist uh, overall, but that's, that's what I'd say. Uh, Ventus Vindictus question, which economic bubble is going to pop first? We have a few areas where things look close to collapse. <coughs> All right, Christian, take it away. I think the bond market will go first. All right, Christian says the bond market. The bond market's way larger than the stock market. And and we talked about this with debt monetization. There's this thing, there's this term called bond vigilantes that that basically force interest rates to go higher when they think that it deserves to go higher. And yeah. um I mean, the interest on the debt alone at five percent is eventually gonna swamp this country, at least the the federal government. And you're looking at China, Japan, major corporations, Wall Street, Silicon Valley. Most holders of federal treasuries are net sellers right now. Yeah. 
And so who's buying those treasuries? So and explain real quick for everyone what that actually, what that means from a practical when, standpoint with government spending. and Practical uh, standpoint is that in order to fund the federal government, more debt needs to be issued, not just to fund the federal government, but to fund the existing debt because, yeah. because we're constantly running a, a deficit, right? And so what happens over time is that eventually the amount of new debt that has to be issued just to pay for the old debt, let alone new spending or new programs or anything, just to pay for the interest will be so high that nobody will be there. There physically won't be enough people in the bond market to buy up that debt yeah. without demanding higher interest rates, but higher interest rates demand more debt to pay for that higher interest. And so unless you balance the budget, inevitably you have a buyer of last resort resort and that buyer of last resort is the federal reserve itself. And when the federal reserve steps in to do it, you get debt monetization that will eventually lead to a, a, a debt crisis. Yeah. And, and, well, and then you, and then you get a sovereign debt crisis where the, the value of the dollar, the, the it basically this sounds like a, a whole episode. Yeah, it's it's, signifi it's significantly bottom line is what it leads to eventually is the federal government isn't allowed to pay all of it or, or does not have the capability to pay all its bills. And then when it gets really bad, it doesn't have the capability of paying the people it uses to enforce its rules. It, it, the right? end state is Argentina is what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, at this it's, point that, yeah. <laughs> and, and it may, yeah. you know, Javier Malay is actually doing some really good When we did our right wing backlash episode, maybe I'm wrong when I said that I think that we're going to end up with a Caesar. I think it's going to be the right that will go authoritarian and wokeism will be crushed, but unfortunately it's not going to be crushed by crushed by classic liberals it's going to be crushed by authoritarians yeah. for once the left will be right when they say this is fascism yeah. I, but you know what i might be wrong yeah. because malay is not a fascist no no not at all even though they keep calling him one he uh, name oh, me a fascist that reduces government power and increases individual exactly. liberty this is oh, i no think such people thing. just don't understand i, I think malay, people malay throw these the, terms around and don't understand them I'll, I'll go a step further malay is the least fascist um, world leader in the western hemisphere the least fascist because fascists don't reduce government power or their control over the government. That's the, no, it, it's, I'm telling you that every other world leader is technically more fascist. I'm not saying they're all fascist. I'm yeah, more yeah. fascist than Javier Malay. All right. We got to get through this because we only got a couple more minutes. All right. Um, uh, NAS, how concerned are you with terror attacks and illegal immigrants crossing the border? Yeah, this we year? didn't address that. I, I, I've said this and I'll say it again. I don't think the biggest problem with, with the crisis on the southern border is actually rooted in terrorism. I think it's rooted in just overwhelming the system. It, it overwhelming public services, overwhelming, you know, spending. Um, well, a lot of people have a lot of concerns because when you see these people stopped, you'll see, you know, all these military aged men lined up who are not refugees from this yeah. hemisphere. Basically they are from either the Look, Middle I, East I, I or China and they're all lined up, but I'll they're coming it, up through there. I'll put it real simply. I, I actually think the overwhelming of the public systems is, is a bigger threat from that than it is with like the terrorist attacks. That doesn't mean I don't think potential terrorist attacks could, could be a significant threat. And obviously that is one of the threats that we need to address at the border. I just don't think it's the, it's not at the top of the list. I would say it's like third for me. That, that's that's the best way I can do it. Freedom Seeker said, will governments will world governments figure out that India's position its young population across the world in a long game, game land grab effort like the world has never seen before? I don't, 
I I don't really I don't think that's something the Indian government is is necessarily India's not doing. looking to like invade Bangladesh or anything. I mean they're they're well, looking they're, to they're consolidate saying, control over Kashmir, but well, no, I, I think they're talking about all over the world. So it's the idea that obviously there's there's a so here's the deal. I, I don't think that I don't think like that there's some grand plan within the Indian government to disperse its population in order to engage in a massive land grab. I think what's happening is it's the most populated country on the world. It has horrible grinding poverty. A lot of people that are capable of immigrating do immigrate and search for a better life. Um, but I, I don't, I think China had a much more nationally focused strategy to try to like, for instance, take uh, African nations that were heavy in natural resources, put them into no win debt situations in order to control those resources. I don't think the Indian government has a similar focus. I, I think a lot of, People are just leaving India for for countries that they think have better economic advantages. Um, now I could be wrong on that, but I just I don't I, I don't see the same sort of centralized you know uh, global strategy out, out of India that I do in places like like China. I, I don't I think they'd be far more difficult to pull it off. I do think India is going to take over entertainment because Bollywood is awesome. <laughs> I watched RRR and I thought it was fantastic. I absolutely love the fact that Indian made films will completely suspend everything we know about physics and reality and just let you live in a different world. And there's going to always be a dance off and yeah. a dance fight of some sort. It, and they will throw motorcycles. They will throw tigers. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. I love it. Uh, and I loved the fact that the that movie RRR yeah. was the most pro-gun movie I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it kind of was. Yes, I R love it. Go Robert, watch it. Robert Ball, can we stop paying taxes if they won't stop sending money to Ukraine? I mean, Robert, you can stop paying taxes right now. They're just going to arrest you. <laughs> like, that's, that's what it comes down to. House of Random Question. Will the U.S. ever stop being the world police and help our own? We will if we have a sovereign debt crisis because we won't be able to pay soldiers. Not to mention the fact that we have a massive recruiting crisis within the United States right now because quite frankly who wants to join a military that seems more focused on transgender inclusion than it does actually fighting you know and being a, a fighting force sir grog asked question one thing you left out about the ukraine russian war is the possibility of nuclear weapons especially if the u.s gets involved comments i i don't think look here's what it comes down to nuclear weapons i think it only makes sense for most people like if yeah if you're if you're a if you're a mullah somewhere that believes that this is the only way we're going to get you know whatever all at a return, then yeah, you might you might use a nuclear weapon for things that don't necessarily make sense. Uh, but if you're if you're Putin, I, I just don't think you're using nukes. The the only way Putin's going to use nukes is if he got to the point where he thought his regime uh, was was absolutely threatened with like a massive Western invasion of the Russian homeland. And I don't I don't think that's going to happen. Ukraine doesn't have the capability to pull that off, especially not without uh, massive Western support. And so I don't think it's I just don't think it's going to go nuclear over there. Um, I think I think Putin did that because it worked as a way to remind everyone that it was an option, and it's like, oh yeah, okay, there, there is an escalation for which nobody will be happy. But but ultimately, I think it ends with again U.S. taxpayers funding the peace, and part of that peace is going to have to be bought at the expense of, um, you know, and again, I'm not saying I like this. I'm not saying I want it to go this way. I'm saying what I think will happen. Uh, Zelensky is going to get offered a major deal to walk back some of his things. Like we're taking back all of our territory to include Ukraine or to, excuse me, to include Crimea. Um, I, I think Putin is going to get concessions when it comes to supplying Western Europe with energy again, because quite frankly, it's just too damn expensive. And it turns out that, you know, 
basing your energy policy on a pissed off 16 year old Swedish girl, I guess she's 20 now, uh, was, was not, was not good policy. And so the, what, what Russia is going to get is a large infusion of cash, not in the form of direct subsidization, but in the form of once again, them being able to supply Western Europe with, um, energy. Uh, Roya Turo, will China choose another target that's easier than Taiwan? They're bullying the Philippines right now. The Spratly Islands Spratly's, have always been a, a point yeah. of contention. But there, I mean, the reason that China is picking a target in Taiwan is because they have a territorial claim over the island that yeah. stretches back hundreds of years. Regardless of, of the regime in Beijing right now, Taiwan has been a part of China on and off for, for centuries Right. Like, I, I mean, they lost control of it to the Japanese in the first Sino-Japanese war, but then they got yeah. it back after World War Two. And yeah. so, like, from 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 the Communist Party's perspective, this is rightful Chinese territory, yeah. whereas like, you know, Laos is not rightful yeah. Chinese. They, territory. They, they have a they have a causus belli, right? A, a cause for war. Here's here's the deal. If you, if you look at this on kind of like a, a moral framework or even an international relations framework, people always try to come up with a reason why they're not the aggressor, right? That that is, that is a that is a kind of a common theme now. And what's amazing, even if you go back to ancient Rome, when Rome was like obviously the aggressor. They were constantly looking for reasons to justify what they were doing is, no, 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 we're not their aggressor, but if we don't attack them right now, they're going to attack us. Don't you remember that thing? So China has a much easier cause of spell with Taiwan than they do with something like the Spratleys or, or with the Philippines or with Laos or, or, or Vietnam. But, but ultimately I, I do, I do think that they will try to bully somebody. I just don't know how it's going to manifest. It could manifest itself in parts of like Mongolia. It could manifest itself in, in parts of, um, you know, it can manifest itself with respect to India. Um, it can manifest itself with the Spratly islands. I don't think they're going to do anything too outrageous against the country that would require them to launch a major amphibious operation in some way that is perceived to be a very, very strong U S ally. So read into that what you will. I think it'll probably be, they'd be more likely to, you know, pick a limited fight with a, a border country for which they don't have to deal with the same logistical issues. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And then final question here from snake question for Nick. I've been watching your shorts and it's clear that you're based in Christianity. Would you say that there are people who would disagree with you purely due to that fact? Um, maybe some people, but we, we actually have a lot of people that watch. I mean, Rocky's one of the guys on here that watches very regularly and, and contributes a lot. Um, who, who makes no, uh, <laughs> makes, makes no bones about the fact that he is, he is very hardcore atheist. Um, I mean, look, I, I always tell people that um, I, I appreciate anybody that's willing to sit down and give us an audience and watch, and I hope that they actually get something out of it. But I'm, I'm never going to shy away from the fact that um, I, I am a Christian, and that's that's the foundation of my worldview. The, the, way I, the way I explained it to somebody once before was I said, look, I can, um, we can talk about the ideas all day long, but I'm not going to ignore the author of those ideas or the person I believe to be the author of those ideas because that's that's fundamental to why I believe they're true and and uh, in part of why they think they work well with objective reality, objective morality, and objective truth. And so I'm sure that there are some people that might just instantly disregard. Um, but I will say this. We are actually planning a long-requested episode that we're going to do uh, probably here in the next month or so, uh, maybe two months where we're going to talk about the idea is, is, is Christianity reasonable? And the, the whole purpose of that episode is actually not going to be, it's not going to be necessarily a, um, an evangelical or proselytizing focused episode. It's going to be more about 
trying to address the questions um, of it, is it is it reasonable for a, a logic rational person that believes in freedom of inquiry and scientific discovery to actually have a, a genuine commitment to Christianity. And we're, we're going to address that by actually, you know, doing a steel man argument with all of the arguments against Christianity and some of those uh, philosophical questions, some of those uh, scientific questions. But, but really what the goal of that episode is going to be is not to say, okay, we've, we've made some comprehensive argument for everything, but it's, it's going to be, I hope to dispel this myth that, me believing in that. And, and the, the example I gave to Tina was we do have some people listen to us like, yeah, I really like Nick on politics and I really like Nick on uh, what it means to be a man. And I really like Nick on what it means to, you know, raise sons or raise daughters. But you know, on this one issue, he's kind of the crazy uncle. And what I want to at least demonstrate is that if I can't convince you to believe what I believe, I at least want to be able to demonstrate that this is not my crazy uncle side. Um, me believing in this is not something that you make an allowance for because, okay, well, because I like Nick on all these other things, I'm willing to put up with this and, and just assume that on this, he just really hasn't thought about it enough. The whole point of the episode is going to be like, no, I've thought about it quite a bit. It's the thing I've thought the most about. And, and I do believe it's true. And these are the reasons why. And if you're going to say, okay, Nick, I, I don't, I don't agree with you. You can say that, but my goal is for you to walk away from that going, I might not agree with Nick on this but this isn't the crazy uncle aspect of his personality. Like he really has thought about it and, and he has at least made the argument for why it is reasonable to believe this. So that again, that's a, that's an episode that we've actually had requests in our community for a while now. And I think we're going to, uh, we're going to look at it from that perspective. Not, not Christianity is just like the noble myth or a noble set of values or, or whatnot, or a nice story about a good man, but actually talk about like, no, this is what it says. And this is why it's reasonable to believe it. And you can choose, not to, right? Uh, we're not going to kick you off and not answer your questions anymore or whatnot if you, if you choose not to, but to at least come to the conclusion that, okay, that that's reasonable. All right. Well, listen, we've gone way over what we said we were going to do, but whenever we get questions, we, we really try to be diligent in answering all those questions. And if you like this, where we kind of, we said, Hey, look, we're going to talk about this for a good hour, hour, 15 minutes. And then we're going to jump into questions so that we can really get to some of the things that you wanted to hear us talk about on this topic that maybe we didn't get a chance to. If you like that, let us know, like join the community chat and say, Hey, Follow this episode. Really like the fact that you dedicated a whole portion of the episode to just answering questions. Because if you like that structure, we will start including it. But we got to hear from you. So be sure you go to Circle. Also, once again, you know what time it is. It's time for you to order meat. So I want you to go to goodranchers.com. I want you to use promo code Nick. I want you to sign up for one of those subscriptions. Because in January, this deal is, is working right now through January. In January, you sign up for one of those subscriptions. They're going to send you free chicken. And dude, I am telling you, this chicken is really, really good. Like I've had it. Um, and it is, it, is, it is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. So Speaking of subscriptions, please like and subscribe. You never ask people to like and subscribe for That's us. It's on purpose. Why is that? Because if they want to see more of it, they'll subscribe. All right, I guess. If we do a good enough job. I yeah. guess so. Well, we'll, we'll give the uh, <laughs> the pitch that Dream usually gives in his Minecraft playthroughs. <laughs> and I don't even really like the guy, but he is a good content creator, even though I don't necessarily like the guy. Uh. Um, and what he says is, if you liked the content, yeah. you know, He's most like of you watching probably aren't subscribed. It takes like two seconds to like it. And if you change your mind, you can always unsubscribe. Yeah. You, it costs you nothing. I, I like, I like nerd Roddick's clothes out. He always goes, if you liked what you watch, you know, you know, 
like and subscribe if you didn't like what thanks you saw. Thanks for watching. If you didn't like what you saw, <laughs> thanks for hanging with us for the whole, you know, whatever it was. But once again, thank you very much. And if I can leave you with anything, I will leave you with this. I'm excited about 2024. I really am. Not because I don't think that there's going to be a lot of challenges, not because I don't think there's going to be stuff happens that I, I wish wouldn't have happened. But I, I'm really going into this year focused on there's the things I can't control. There's the things I might be able to have an effect on. Right. And then there's the things I have a lot of control over in my life. And, and as I look at things, as I get ready to plan out what I'm going to put in my garden this year, as I look at the things that I'm going to be doing with my kids, as I look at the fact that my oldest daughter is getting married to a great guy, as I look at all of these things, I'm like, you know what? That's where the main focus is going. It's going on the things that I have the most control over and that I can have the biggest impact on. It doesn't mean I'm going to ignore the other things that I have less of an impact on. I'm still going to fight those battles. But I'm not going to let them dominate my attention. I'm going to keep the attention focused on the things that God's put in front of me, that God's given me more responsibility over. Because here's what I've noticed. When I focus more on those things, I do a better job on the other things. All right? So that's what I'm going to do. 2024 is, is, is going to be great. Not in every aspect. Um, and I'm not just saying this as some sort of like blam optimistic, like it's all about how you think about things. No, th some things just suck. Right? And we're going to have to go through them. But the more we're focused on actually preparing ourselves by just doing the things that make sense to do, whether it's good times or bad, I think we make the better times better. And I think we're able to help navigate other people through the bad times more effectively. So that's the mission for 2024. We're glad you're here with us and we look forward to seeing you next episode.